everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today, ladies and gentlemen, we are dusting off the 3D glasses to continue our hunt for unobtainium at long last. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we are reviewing Avatar The Way of Water. I can't believe it. I can't believe I just said those words. 13 years in the making. We're going to start with an icebreaker question before jumping into a spoiler-free review and uh, also uh, give a verdict on the film. And then we're going to conclude with an in-depth spoiler discussion where we'll hit on some of the themes and just like larger conversations surrounding the film. Rejoining me today, who sadly was not with us uh, for our Avatar 1 review, award-winning Oklahoma filmmaker and co-host of the Cinemax Schematic, LaRon Chapman. I was there with you in spirit, though, so yes. um, it is a pleasure to be back. Also rejoining us from our Avatar 2009 review, Alexandra Bohannon, former host of Soundtrack, writer, a talented person who does many things. Welcome back. Hi, it's great to be back. This time I'm in this cultural zeitgeist. I've seen it when it came out. That's amazing. Good job, me. <laughs> I just want to reiterate, Alex, you have the, the, the perspective you bring is someone who hasn't spent 13 years of your life being like, is this thing really going to come out? Rejoining us, I think first time in a review discussion, is a man of many talents uh, who does Many, many awesome things around our film community here in Oklahoma City, in, Oklahoma, in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, he's a Dead Center Features programmer. He's a professor at uh, University of Oklahoma in film studies. Also a filmmaker here in Oklahoma, Sunrise Tepicani. Sunrise, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be in this room. This is uh, I hear it, and now it's nice to see it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Put a place yeah. to the sound. It is. We are real people. We're not voices <laughs> just coming from the internet. <laughs> uh, listeners, now, before we get into today's review, I wanted to note that if you're listening to the show today and you do enjoy the conversation, please support us by subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on your preferred podcast app. And I, I'm just going to beat this uh, drum a little louder today because we are nearing the end of the year and we've had, you know... I won't get into the details, but there was definitely 2020, early 2021, I was like, am I really going to do the podcast anymore? Because the pandemic threw everything out of the whack. The future of big screen, the big screen was in question. A lot of uncertainty. I'm like, are we going to do this? Uh, and the answer is yes, as you've heard. Uh, we've done, I think, around 30, anywhere, I think somewhere between like 30 and 35 episodes this year. And if you've been listening to these and you haven't left us a review, the greatest holiday gift you could give us to round out the year is that uh, that review um, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Now, that said, this is going to be, I expect to be a lengthy discussion, hopefully not as lengthy as the film we're discussing, but uh, there's a lot to unpack with Avatar The Way of Water. We're going to get into that in a moment. But before we do, I want you to learn a little bit about our perspectives on the one, the only, James Cameron. And that is why this week's icebreaker question is, what is your favorite James Cameron movie and why? LeBron Chapman, what is your favorite James Cameron movie? Man, this was... Uh... This is for me, this is one of those questions like, what's your favorite Spielberg movie? And it's like, he's done every genre. <laughs> so it's like, how do you compare, you know, E.T. to The Color Purple? They're not comparable to me. But um, I think, though, I mean, me being a product of the 90s, I'm a sucker for Titanic. Whoa! I can see the Statue of Liberty already. Very small, of course. Wow! 
It's one of those movies where, yes, it's a, a Hollywood melodrama, but it's an example of one that I feel like is just highly polished. And to this day, just because of all the practical effects and what have you, you know, you still can watch that movie now and it still has that that, you know, that very epic feel to it. Um, that some films, you know, in subsequent years, you know, kind of, you know, that, that those effects kind of age, you know, over time. So and it's still also just a, a, a good story, you know, but T2 is a really close second. You know? T2 is <laughs> a, it's a it's a t- it is a tough pick. And I'm glad you mentioned Titanic. I won't go too in the weeds on it. But Alex, you and I did. We watched that one a few years back. Oh, yeah, we did a good, good trash, trash genre pod. cast. I want to say it was either the 300th or 400th episode somewhere in there. Um it, gosh, I guess it's already been like three years. It was 2019 era, but I remember I rewatched it and, the, and I was impressed at the time by how well the effects had held up. Like I, I was expecting them to look not good, but they actually hold up quite well just because of how James Cameron chooses to use uh, the VFX as a tool. But yeah, God, that's a good, it's a great movie. Alexandra Bohannon. For me personally, I mean, I'm going to say T2. Hasta la vista, baby. It shows you how you can pair groundbreaking special effects with um, a really powerful story, a strong female lead. I mean, it really checks all the boxes for me personally. So, And I know across the entire world, I, I don't think anyone is in disagreement about how incredible T2 is. So I'm just going to kind of leave it there. It's non-controversial for a reason. Yeah. Right? Sunrise. Amazing. What, 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 what's your favorite James Cameron movie? Yeah, I'm conflicted again, like uh, everybody else. Aliens, I think, is the one that kept coming up in my head. from her you bitch the concept is amazing everybody has seen that film and is so impressed every time they see it and just the revolutions it did in terms of like thinking you're at the end of the film and then it's got another 20 minutes and you're really into that 20 minutes Mm -hmm. like that's really amazing i don't know if another film has done that prior to that as successfully as that film it's like almost so iconic i wonder if there's a lot of people who haven't seen it but like if you've ever played halo you don't get Halo without aliens. Anything, mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. anything yeah. without space with space marines, mm-hmm. it, it, doesn't, sure. it doesn't exist without aliens. And uh, the the way I think it like redefined in a lot of ways, like a sci fi blockbuster, I just think it's really impressive. And, and again, it holds up. Like yeah. and every time you rewatch it, you're like, how did he make a movie in the '80s that just feels like if you put it out today, mm-hmm. it would still be just as and fresh. the design of the yeah. aliens. He made. I mean, aliens for the longest time have been these like. You know what I mean? These tentacle-based kind of, you know, but there's something very tangible and tactile about them. The way and so that they he made them genuinely horrific, you know, and so um, and it has influenced so many so many other science fiction films and alien movies. What's funny about that is I came to watching Aliens when I was in college, and before then, I've talked about this in on other podcasts before, but I like t- telling this point. You're so you're gonna hear it again. Uh, essentially, I've like seen this story so many times in the works that are deriving from it when I came to watch Aliens I was like oh this isn't original this isn't fresh it's like yeah it was it set the genre for literally everything Um, and so it's kind of groundbreaking it's kind of wild to think about how that 
just was the bar for so long um, for science fiction cinema. It's just it's and just caused everything to follow. Just amazing. And then just like sequels also, like just adding that S, like that historic story, but I'm like writing the dollar sign or whatever the end (laughs) of the title. (laughs) What an amazing pitch. But just like this reframing of what the sequel title can be instead of just like part two, part two, part two, was like all of a sudden it, yeah, you know, I think he's normally pretty good at being the part. I mean, I'm wearing you know, like audiences can't see. I'm wearing a scream shirt, a scream sweater, um, and you know, there's a huge conversation in the middle of that movie where you know, like, let's talk about sequels and what's better, and that one comes up in conversation and parody. Um, and Cameron is one of those people, you know, like so. Um, he had a huge feat to do to take on. I mean, Ridley Scott's Alien because that's incredible in its own right. So. Um, to up the ante in that regard, you know, it's definitely more action packed. There's a lot more blood, and we get our iconic line from Sigourney Weaver. So, oh my god, it lives in the it lives in the yes. universe now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fantastic. And again, not to, you, you, I absolutely don't want to sell Ridley Scott's Alien short. You know, doing a haunted house in space is an excellent film, but I I don't think a lot of people who maybe haven't seen the movies both of those in a while or have only seen one movie have probably seen aliens, not realizing it's not alien um, because so much of the iconography comes from the sequel, even though the original is very, very, very good. The space Marines, the iconic line, Sigourney Weaver and the mech. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's a great movie, man. I don't want to just say T2, because, but if it's, but it's, it's okay, it's Terminator it Two. Is. Is You're the in truth. a safe space, Caleb. I promise. I, I, I just want to give a shout out. The Abyss is great. Allegedly, he said someone on the press tour, "We're finally going to get a 4K re-release of that next year." I'll believe it when I see it. I hope. I've been waiting so long. Like, there's not even a Blu-ray of that. Yeah. No. no. What? Yeah. No. There's not been a remaster of. Uh, no. Oh, the Abyss. There's like a collector's okay. DVD, but not a not a not a Blu-ray. Mm. And what I figured out is I used to blame the studio like f- weirdness for this, but I actually think in this case it's a hundred percent James Cameron wants to be a part of the process, and he's been too busy making <laughs> Avatar sequels to do anything that's not Avatar. Um, so He'll retire po- doing Avatar movies, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> right. but yeah, T uh, two. Come with me if you want to live. It's okay, mom. He's here to help. It's okay. It's similar to Alien and mm-hmm. Aliens. Uh, it reframes everything we thought about the original. In this case, it makes Arnold the hero and really uh, really kind of dives into the relationship between man and machine in, in some really thoughtful ways. I want to make sure I'm clear that I think James Cameron's an incredibly brilliant filmmaker, but his movies a lot of times are, like they aren't really diving into super heady themes as often. I do think T2 is probably where he yeah. kind of gets a little more philosophical when compared to Aliens or Avatar or Titanic. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because when we think about um, – what we discussed on the 2009 recap pod. And we posited that James Cameron, the sequel King, and that's kind of coming out now. And I think as we're going to talk about this, I I have a sinking suspicion that that's going to be the case for our talk today is, is James Cameron, the King of sequels, taking it, taking what was established and then doing something more and better. Listeners, you know a little bit more about where we stand with James Cameron T2, Alien, Titanic, they're all great. And we have all have our favorites. Uh, nobody said Piranha 2. No one. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm so surprised. Honorable mention. <laughs> the movie he notoriously got fired from. Also, I'm not going to sit here and just uh, be a James Cameron fanboy all day. But you know what else is cool? He didn't go to school to be a filmmaker. He was a truck driver and just decided he wanted to make movies. 
That's great. <laughs> like, I love that. Um, there's a, and I'm going to link this in the show notes. There is a really cool GQ um, story that came out a few weeks ago. It's a very, it's a very long read, probably like a 30 or so minute read. But man, you he is. You you get some of his backstory. You get inside his mind, his mindset. He talks about why if he's not making Avatar sequels, he's not making movies. Like that's the people were like, oh, why would he waste the rest of his career doing sequels? He says, well, you don't understand. If I'm not doing Avatar sequels, I'm not making movies. Yeah, like I'm I'm doing environmental Man. Uh, sustainability. There is a truck driver that's going to listen to this podcast. Is going to quit his job tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's great. But he talks about his, he like went and like he went to the uh, the University of Southern California library and just like checked a bunch of stuff out and read. And anyway, I just think it's really cool. He's like one of the one of the most important filmmakers in terms of like blockbuster cinema who just didn't take the same path as a lot of other people like Spielberg uh, that we really appreciate. So that said. Uh, we should all know probably how we all watched the movie because there are more formats for Avatar The Way of Water than any other film. We don't just have 2D and 3D We have and, and 3D IMAX. We have 3D IMAX with, with HFR, which is the high frame rate. We have the non-high frame rate 3D. Yeah, it, there's a lot of different ways to watch it. I think it set a record. I'm pretty sure I read. Sunrise, how did you watch the film? I saw it twice. Thursday night, I saw it in the Dolby Theater, which is what he recommended. So I saw it there. High frame rate, Atmos, uh, 185 3D. Premium large format, I guess. Um, and then I saw it the second night, uh, last night, at the Warren Grand. So I don't know if that's a premium format, but it was 2D and it was a different aspect ratio. Oh, okay. It was a 239 okay. and the Dolby was like a 185. Okay. Well, I have a question. What did you prefer? Yeah, I'm actually very intrigued now that. Yeah. The 3D high frame rate. Controversial, I think, probably. Okay. But right. yeah, I preferred that one. I am, I, ha, I am playing to see this movie at least. Actually, I, I said another time, but even this morning I was like, mm, two more times. Because I want to go see it. In the relaxing comfort of a Flix brew house, but I also know that Cameron specifically is like, you need to see this in a Dolby uh, theater, um, which I didn't know when we booked our Warren tickets. Um, oh, that actually wasn't was that wasn't Dolby? No, no, no. War, the Warren it's an IMAX, 3D uh, IMAX, okay. which is very close. And our and our screen was our overall screen. Yeah, was larger, but the mm. it's um I, it's something with the re resolution, I believe, and yeah, I think the aspect ratio as well. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, highly technical, but uh, okay. So we have a fan of the HFR. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. react to that in a moment. But Laron, how about you? Uh, I saw it in IMAX uh, 3D. Uh, uh, I believe it was the the high frame rate um, at Quail Springs Mall. Um, and I actually, um, I went into a little trepidation because I don't, I'm not, I'm not generally a fan of that because I seeing that with the Hobbit film. Oh, the Hobbit was a disaster. It just, yeah. it, it ruined it for me. If there ever was a good format for it to be used in, um, mm -hmm. that one, that one made me not want to see it again. Um, but for whatever reason, I don't think it, it didn't really register to me as a distraction with this with this screening. You know, so. I don't know if I was too too busy looking at uh, underwater coral or or what it was, and I wasn't paying attention to it. But um, it didn't bother me, and I guess that to me, in and of itself, you know, says that it was fine. You know, like so. Um, I yeah, I was I was taken by other things, you know. So it swept away by the. I was the HFR, swept though. away by the yeah, exactly. So all right, that's mission accomplished on. Jim yeah. Cameron's part. Yeah. Yeah. It was seamless for me. So mm -hmm. minus a couple, I mean, a couple of things, you know, during action sequences, like with the whales, 
the, some of their movements, like it would come in and out, but it was, it wasn't, um, again, it wasn't distracting or yeah. Okay. Didn't give me a headache. All right. That's good. And that wasn't 3d or that was 2d 3d 3d 3D. Yeah. Alex, you and yeah. I saw the film together. We did. We went to the Warren and Moore IMAX, not Dolby, uh, <laughs> and the uh, 3d HFR format. I don't know about it for me. Cause like whenever, like for most of the time I couldn't tell, but then when you could tell, then you're like, I had, there was a point I had to close my eyes cause I'm like, I can't tell what's happening and I'm very overstimulated right <laughs> yeah. now. Well, so. I, wonder, right. I wonder if it affects, cause I see that you wear glasses. Are those prescription? Yeah. Prescription glasses. And yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if that has an effect to like people's visual impairments or what uh, have you. Or, motion sickness. I, yeah. I wonder if it's a factor too. I even told in my letterbox, I was like, see it. If you have any history of motion sickness, just be safe. I'd hate, I'd hate for someone to go in and the, and the HFR totally wreck their take experience. Yeah. Maybe like the Hobbit. Right. Yeah. Cause um, if they're nauseous and uncomfortable the whole time, then they're not going to. Yeah. 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 I, mm-hmm. As a person who is prone to motion sickness from, um, so this is an aside that cut it out if you want, Caleb, but I played Skyrim once in, uh, in VR and there's a part where you like get on the cart at the beginning and oh, just yeah. being yeah. on the cart jostling me. I like, I had to lay down on the couch yeah. the rest of the night, but as someone that is prone to motion sickness, uh, I only got it like two or three times watching it in the HFR. So that's not bad for three hours. So when Corridge isn't a part, I guess it's spoilery. So I won't go into it. There's a part where he's like typing on an iPad and he tur- it turns upside down in the spaceship. And that got me really good, but that's kind of... Oh, at the beginning? The very, very oh, beginning. okay. That's not yeah. too much of a spoiler. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he's on the ship. That one was that was an interesting scene. A lot, lot of layers. <laughs> that one. I, overall, I would say it was a more positive experience for me than a negative. It is hands down the best case I've seen for HFR. The Hobbit was a disaster. I was like, there's no reason we should ever do movies this way. <laughs> that was a decade ago, by the way. That movie just hit turned 10 like last week. Wow. And in the 10 years, I've thought, well, maybe I'd give it another shot if there was a movie that was built around the tech. And uh, I didn't find out until, gosh, I think it, he was at some con in the last six months. I had no idea this movie was even going to be an HFR until very recently. And I was like, okay, what James Cameron is doing here, I think, m- much more closely aligns with the, what the tech is capable for. Because you think high frame rate, you think video games, you think sports. Mm-hmm. Opera. And, yeah, opera. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> yes. the opera. Uh, I... Look, opera tickets are expensive, guys. So. <laughs> For real, it's like though. you're there. <laughs> Just go to the theater and watch it in <laughs> HFR. My biggest thing with this one is it's not whenever it's, it's in high frame rate or not. It's the in between when you it shift. That's when I can kind of feel the see the the, the, the puppet master with the strings sure. a little bit. Yeah. Sure. But I will say when I was in it, like uh, there's some see, especially the underwater sequences in particular in the second act when they're like swimming with the whales. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, just mind blowing. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't trade that uh, for a two D version the first time. So anyway, yeah, the audience is there. You go. There are more formats to watch uh, Avatar: The Way of Water than any other movie before. Uh, it's up to you. I think if you're if you have an open mind and you and you can appreciate three D, do the HFR three uh, D again. As Sunrise noted, uh, the Dolby. Uh, if you have a Dolby. Cinema anywhere within driving distance. That's actually the version that James Cameron wants you to see it in. And that is the version that played at the world premieres in Japan and uh, LA and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they had their own specific, specific uh, glasses. Oh, really? They had like uh, some sort of metal detector. So if you walked out with them, an alarm could go off. So they weren't the ones that are naturally part of the theater. Okay. Oh, wow. 
Okay, okay now I have to go. Yeah. <laughs> no choice. You want to go to China? <laughs> <laughs> go to China. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Got to boost those box office numbers somehow. Uh, right. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our spoiler-free review of Avatar The Way of Water. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forest Boy! If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. So according to IMDb, Avatar The Way of Water is described as Jake Sully lives with his newfound family formed on the extrasolar moon Pandora. Once a familiar threat returns to finish what was previously started, Jake must work with Natiri and the army of the Navi race to protect their home. A few fun facts to provide a little backstory on this film. It's been 13 years since Avatar 1 came out. That's 2009. Uh, and that movie, of course, as we all know, annihilated pretty much every box office record. And it's cruel, but I have to point out for this podcast, too, that Caleb mentioned that there are teenagers walking around on the planet that did not exist uh, when Avatar 1 came out. Um, so they could be walking to Avatar 2 not knowing what's going on. So now everyone has that curse upon them, too. <laughs> Right, I, I just grew a beard. <laughs> a Even beard. longer, a white beard. you know the uh, the gif of uh, Tim Allen from the Santa Claus, where all of a sudden he's going. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <It's a lot. laughs> yeah. the Way of Water is the first of four planned Avatar sequels. So there's going to be five movies in total if all goes as planned. The third movie is nearly finished filming. I think I read that there's like 90% of it has completed filming. Uh, and the fourth film has has already started production. I believe they were trying to shoot all of these scenes with the younger cast members because they were going to age out soon. Smart. Time waits for no one. <laughs> for really, especially when you're making a James Cameron movie. Especially a James Cameron Avatar movie. Uh, 13 year film, yeah. Yep. Something that might not be quite as obvious is unlike the first film, uh, which credited James Cameron as the sole writer, Avatar The Way of Water includes two co-writers, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, who worked on Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, as well as Mulan. I was much less favorable to that last one, but yeah, the, uh, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> but the Planet of the Apes films, the, very, that tril- very probably yeah. one of the more underrated trilogies. Oh yeah, at yeah. least mm-hmm. of the last like thirty years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really really good stuff. Also, I'll, I'll get into it later. But the writing process for the the sequels is really interesting. This film, though we don't have an exact number out, is estimated to cost anywhere from three hundred and fifty to five hundred million dollars to make. It's nebulous because again, they they shot two and three mostly at the same time. They basically been in production since 2017 so it all kind of runs together for those of you uh old soundtrack fans alex uh replacing the late great composer james horner is simon i say his last name right simon franklin who had worked with alan horn since titanic and this one's just for for kicks and giggles and edward norton apparently was offered a role in avatar 2 and he turned it down because he would only star in it if he could be a navi 
man, him and Matt Damon are really on the, the shit list here when it comes to saying no to, to James Cameron. When James Cameron comes to you, why would you say why no? Why would you say okay. no? Especially when he gives you a 10% stake in the franchise. Let's, what? Okay, let's brainstorm. In the current film, I'm sure maybe as an older draft, but what character would he have played? Would he have played the marine biologist? I think he would have been the marine biologist, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which uh, I was thinking maybe Edie's role as... Uh, General, new general on Foraged. the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 the, the Edie Falco. Yeah, yeah, Edie Falco. Falco. Yeah, yeah um, totally. Maybe, probably the marine biologist. To be honest. Yeah, although yeah. we got Jermaine Clint, Clint which is uh, that was a I had no great. idea he was in the movie, <laughs> yeah, so that was, was a nice, great. nice touch. Well, ladies and gentlemen, so much to dive into here. And if you are at all interested in what Alex and I thought about Avatar 1, we did just last week uh, release an episode uh, reviewing the re-release that came out in the fall. However, LeBron and Sunrise were not here to share their thoughts, so I'd love to turn to you first, Sunrise. What did you think of Avatar 1? Good question. Um, I actually had to go to an article that I wrote in December 20th, 2009 to remember. <gasps> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's good that you archive it, though. Dang. Yeah. It was on a, on a something called the Candler blog, if anybody's interested. But this was before Letterboxd. Before Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I just, uh, I, uh, just one thing about, uh, the, the technology, I had to remove my 3d glasses and I found the film to be more relaxing. I was able to f- focus on the performance and the story then. And I remembered that I did that this time as well. There was a moment where I was just like tearing up and I took it off and I was able to sort of like focus and somehow it was a little bit more calming okay. at moments. I think that I was like overwhelmed. Um, but generally my, my Response to the first one was just uh, with a lot of apprehension because I felt like it was uh, appropriating culture, an indigenous culture in a way that I felt very uncomfortable with, you know, like the whooping and hollering. And it kind of happens in this film. Uh, but the the thing that I had the biggest problem with was this sort of like idea that a, a non-indigenous person can get into an indigenous body and then able mm. to very easily be accepted very and, get outy, right? A little, a little oh, get yeah. outy. And he also, yeah. also became not only accepted but became the best version. You <laughs> like, know, he, I'm he's the like, super one. I've been in this body for like six weeks. I'm uh, and I just hijacked <laughs> your magic <laughs> dragon. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. So I, you know, I was very uncomfortable with that. But beyond that, I you know, I thought the animation was great. Uh, I thought the the 3D animation specifically related to the water was like the greatest that I'd seen up to that point. Um, but since then, I've always had this major question. It, the film made a lot of money and we consider it to be one of the greatest box office successes. But what's strange to me is I've never met an Avatar fan the way that I've met like a Star Wars fan or like a Marvel fan. And I was waiting to see when this film comes out, am I going to see people like dressed up? I remember there were people that dressed up at the premiere of the first film. And I was like, where, where are these people? And I was curious leading into this about that that circumstance um, yeah, i know there's been a lot of conversation online over the last few years of the uh is it uh quote in quotes uh culturally relevant you know like right. what sort of cultural footprint did it have right and it's the valid question um we talked about this in our re-review it's, it didn't catch on um and i i wonder sunrise and i'm curious what you think and i think there's probably a lot of things very complex reason for why things get popular mm-hmm. larger things, but there weren't any sequels right away. There, were, from what I know, there wasn't really very. If, there might have been some comic book tie-ins, maybe. I don't mm-hmm. think there was, and there was a novelization, I'm sure, but there wasn't like a novel series. There wasn't a video game. Mm-hmm. It's like James Cameron, the old-fashioned way, made an amazing movie, 
And then that was it. Went right back to work on the next one, but that's all he did. And like, then so Pandora, the world of Avatar, the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. park didn't open until t- 2017. So that's there crazy. was so that's they crazy. really slept on that um, yeah. goodwill that's of. Crazy. Yeah. So. It's like, nothing to reinforce the brand at all in that time. Right. Yeah. The natural conversation that I think happens with anything gets popular is like, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. But then about a month, two months later, well, actually, there's a movement. You know, like, we all, we've been through this a million times. Oh, at this point. Yeah. I, actually, it wasn't very good. And here's why. And then and then and then a few months later, you have a reaction to like, wait, those people aren't being fair. And then, yeah. you know, it's yeah. a it's a Maybe it's it is a, pretty good. It's a toxic circle. And then eventually I think it just kind of set up. People kind of settle in their, in their minds. But I know online that's it feels like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how this course goes. We're, we're, it's, it's Schrodinger's box office right now, guys. Yeah. Like, like yeah. we're recording this before we know how big this movie is going to be. Oh, definitely. That's true. And. And uh, I'm really curious as you like the movie's got fans, but like it's not like right. religious fandom. It's not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that really makes these like two mil- two billion dollar successful films like people go to Marvel dressed mm. up. Right. Yeah. I saw two people with Avatar shirts in my theater for the f- the fact night. that you saw two, I'm actually floored. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Does that count that I wore all blue? I did have blue socks and a blue t-shirt with a blue jacket. Does that count? <laughs> I think that counts. That counts. He was one of the two. Yeah. Laurent <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chapman, what did you think of Avatar One? You know, it's interesting because I, 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 it was I, me and my partner rewatched Avatar in preparation for this as well at home uh, without all the effects, um, and it was a much different experience than when I saw it in 2009 as a 19-year-old. Um, uh, I think at that point I would have been in early college at that point, maybe. Um, but no, not yet. Um, but it basically, I remember seeing it then and remembering just the the wonder and the the you know just being completely transported by it and. And it feeling like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, but I wasn't as much of a sophisticated, like, you know, cinephile at that point where I was really, like, mining, you know, any any gripes about the story or what have you. So I, I have that weird nostalgic fondness of it, you know, still kind of, like, tucked away, like, deep inside. Mm-hmm. But as I've rewatched it in subsequent years over the last 13 years— um, but I have not seen it in a long time since just recently. Um, I have very, I have cooled a lot on the storyline, you know, just because I've realized now kind of how, I mean, I want to say basic it is. It's very, it's not a complex story. It's a complex world that they've created. It's a complex mm-hmm. design that they've created. But the story is kind of just cause, effect, good versus bad dances with wolves in space you know like it just is yeah, that and, yeah. and, and you know and like that's fine but that doesn't endure you know what i mean and i think that's what what i've realized as times it has definitely like upped the game in from a technological standpoint you see marvel movies start looking better like i don't think they were even here yet at that point yet. uh just barely iron man one iron man and the incredible hulk had both come mm-hmm. out so, so they've taken they've kind of extracted that aspect of it and, and applied it to different films but for me like you know really groundbreaking filmmaking is whenever like the story endures where like these these effects will age but you know, does the story still move me? And I think that's what I found didn't happen when I rewatched it recently. Um, So I'm of two minds with it. Like I appreciate it for what it was at the time. um, Even if it, if it hasn't, you know what I mean? Sustained me for 13 years, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, you know, when uh, I won't reiterate very much of what was done in our last podcast, just because we, re- I really want to get really into this film. But my feeling was I hadn't watched it in ten years. Like I, lo- I loved it when I saw it. I'd seen the director's cut whenever that Blu-ray came out, uh, and I hadn't watched it since. I've had the Blu-ray that I've only watched one time, mm-hmm. and I loved it. But it's not really been one I go back to for all the reasons that you laid out, Alex. I think we came down on yeah, this plot sucks. I yeah, don't. I don't sucks. think it sucks because it's derivative. I think it sucks because the the, the white savior narrative yeah. stuff is just. It really, it really wasn't good. It was not really acceptable, honestly, in 2009, and it's super duper not acceptable now. Yeah, right. um, I the the kind of bullet point summary of my entire review in that podcast is technical masterpiece, extremely uncomfortable watch because like <laughs> yeah. it just it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, James Cameron being the sequel king, we were like, well, but theoretically, we've gotten all of that. Hopefully, more more of the cringy stuff out of the way with the first one so that we can now focus on we're in the world. We know the characters. They're all Navi. Let's get into whatever James Cameron wants to, to show us with this world. So um, also I'm going to step back and the last thing I'll just say is just uh, rewatching Avatar one in the theater for that re-release. Hate to say it guys, Avatar one still looks better than like 99% of things that come out. Yeah. <laughs> like stunning. the whole VFX industry I think is not, I think Avatar might have been the last time there was a really big push in innovation and quality in terms of visual effects. Like Marvel is not really interested in that as much, I don't think. But, oh, Sunrise, you can retort. Well, uh, I'm curious about a couple of things. So just because he's made this film, I was curious if he – I didn't see the re-release, so I'm curious if there was enhancing. Yes. It's possible, yeah. They they put some a little bit of the HDR in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When there was like – oh. they, they smoothed – like they – they added a little bit of the high frame rate um, when there was like quick cuts and stuff. Not for most of the movie, though. Just but little, it was here and there. the here and there, the inner, the lack of it made it way more jarring when it happened. You're like, what is happening <laughs> yeah. right now? Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. weird because yeah, it wasn't it was like odd. this movie where it was frequent. It was like it just kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was my um, I'm curious if that's the case, if it like enhanced anything as a result or made you think that maybe the effects have not aged or have aged well. Because they've also been enhanced. I have a feeling that he is like George Lucas where he like goes back in and like yeah. refines and refines mm. for each release. That's true. So I'm 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 uncertain about that. Yeah. That's a good point. We did notice Sigourney Weaver. Still looks weird. Well, she looks better. <laughs> in, that, in, that, in that movie. In that movie. <laughs> Sorry. We took a long time of her Navi. F- oh, the Navi. Her, her av- avatar. Because the, the looks... VFX were so impressive. But but with her, maybe it's because she was such a recognizable actress. Yeah. She, it was like a little bit of Uncanny Valley, which, by the way, I think is well addressed. They fix in this they movie. Fixed yeah. That, yeah. Um, but in the first one, it's like that. the first time you see her, you're like, huh. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Choices. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, okay. Well, uh, anything, uh, Leron or sunrise you want to add about avatar one? I'll say, I just tried to, I tried to watch it. Uh, I, I bought the disc and I didn't watch it. And then I tried to watch it for this and, uh, I only got halfway through cause I was so uncomfortable. God, <laughs> of, I don't blame you. It's, yeah. it's guys. The first, the, the story, in the first one's not good. <laughs> it's super not. <laughs> However, so we're problematic. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Yes. Oh, d- unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was not my favorite rewatch. Well intended, uh, but unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. So that begs the question: How is the sequel Avatar: The Way of Water? Does it live up to the hype? Is it a is it a great James Cameron sequel? Is it a letdown? We're gonna go around the table, starting with Laron Chapman. 
Okay, so I went into this weird because I'm not the 19-year-old person I was when I saw Avatar in 2009. So I'm coming into this with a whole, you know, a whole different lens. And so I went into that, but I still had the excitement going in just to kind of see what all of it's about. What did he do? What's all this hype about? You know, you know, I do think he's made kind of a lateral move with the storyline. I think there are improvements in specific areas, you know, um, that I, you know, thought were, you know, definitely kind of course correct some of the issues that I had with the first one. Um, But again, as a visual spectacle, which is all I'm going to, if I move forward and understand that that is what these movies are, they're not changing my life. They're not making my, you know, I mean, if that's what it is, if it's just a carnival ride kind of thing, then it delivers on that front for me. Um, but how long that will endure, again, you know, will remain to be seen. So I, I think it's a visual, uh, again, a, another visual masterpiece. But as far as storytelling, um. I feel like he's doubling down on the genre tropes here. So I found myself going in and out of it, you know, um, from that standpoint, whenever we were focusing on the the uh, the plot of, of sorts, you know, like I'd rather just live underwater, you know, for, for three hours and just look at pretty pictures than to hear some of these characters speak, you know, so, 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 so there's, oh boy. and I just feel like James Cameron, you know, like he's a very skillful director. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the guy's not talented. Clearly we got, we have movies that we've said have been, you know, uh, have, have endured over the years, you know, that were genre films, you know, um, I don't think he needs to write these movies. Mm. I really think that's what it is. You know, I think if he, he, I think it also feels like an afterthought in many ways to me. Like it's like so much of his brain capacity is being used on building the world that the story becomes kind of a like, just put something here and put something there and do this and do that. Okay. I'm not going to totally rebut, but what I will say, and I'm going to highly recommend, I'm going to link to this in the show notes. Um, the way they wrote these mo- these sequels is really interesting because he basically said, well, I have a story so big it would need to be a not I'm basically adapting a novel that doesn't exist. So what did, how did we do it? Well, I got a, he has a team of writers. They're, they're all credited as story. And they had a writer's room style like you'd see on TV. And they, in quotes, wrote the books. Mm-hmm. They wrote the so- source material. He's like, it's like Lord of the Rings, but we didn't have any source material. So we had to write the source material so we could make the movies based on the source material. Okay. And then from there... They basically worked together on the larger story. And then he didn't tell which of these writers was writing which sequel, but like he broke them apart. So after they came come to a consensus on a larger story, he's like, right, you and you, uh, you're writing the second one. You're writing the third one with me. Like he co-wrote them with different partners. They all worked together on the big. So it was just really yeah. fascinating for something of the scale. I think you can feel that on screen. Between these two movies, we're looking at about six and a half hours of film. And I don't think. I don't think we have six and a half hours of compelling storytelling. I think we have six and a half hours of very rich um, world building. That's what I think we have between these two movies. And so like, if I just take the story on its own, if I'm reading the script, I don't know how compelling that would be. We know not being able to see anything. If I was just reading this as a story, like how does it move me? I don't think it, I don't think it accomplishes that goal. It doesn't have the same, poetic lyricism i think that the visuals definitely you know yeah provide i think that's i think that's a fair criticism um so story still 
better, better in specific areas, and we'll get into that as we move forward. I, I, but yes, but yeah, I, but but over, but overall, yes, it hits all the familiar beats that a movie like this needs to hit, without being again particularly memorable as a story. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Sunrise, what did you think of the movie? Yeah, it's interesting hearing all of this, uh, especially the writing process. It's something that I, uh, um, I guess, uh, anticipated that that is the case. It sounds like a writer's room on a TV series. And in, in, in the middle of the film, I was thinking, do I need to assess this more like a series? You know, like this is a, the second episode uh, of, of a larger narrative, and I'll understand some things where I can respond better. Because I had similar responses. So it was mixed. It was definitely a visual feast. Um, I'll describe where um, I, I I felt like there was a lot of potentiality, um, but it didn't cohere in a way that I felt like it could have or that it it seemed like it was suggesting it was going to about the story. I think there are definitely interesting story things there. And maybe it's like the long gestation and I'm going to wait. But, I'm, you know, like there's always this point of criticism that comes up. Do I do I? <laughs> Yeah. Do I think about it now or do I think about it when in it's complete? Another, right. Yeah. yeah like these the are the, thing. these are the constant constant like conversations we're having. You guys had this about Halloween. Yes. And this is a constant conversation people have about Marvel, you know? And I think this is what also kind of tore the alien series apart, yeah. you know, before this really became kind of like a, a, a way that people made movies. And here, I think it kind of suffers from those things. Uh, I still think there's some great things in it, but I'm mixed. I could be convinced, I think. I could be one over. If certain pieces come together if certain later. pieces, yeah. Would you agree with Laurent that the story is more of a lateral move in terms of quality, or do you think it's better? I think it's better in some ways for me. It, it is definitely lateral, um, and it sort of skirts around the sort of indigenous issues that I had in the first one. And if I had never seen them, I might not have those issues as much here. I think there's a couple things, but there are definitely things that are going on in this film that I felt weren't going on in the other one in terms of the themes, the what the characters are learning, a little bit of the world building. Lateral feels right to me. Maybe a lateral a little bit. Less, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> just a it's, little bit of an angle. It's an skew lateral yeah, move. Right. It's, yeah. going this, Slide, it's going this direction, but diagonal. going up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of five-degree angle up. Yeah. Yeah. The right direction. Uh, okay, Alex Bohannon, what did you think of the film? Yeah, Laurent, I think you really just encapsulated you're so articulate. That's like, I, I really just think that's kind of it. It's, there are some fixes, there are some, uh, and there's some wacky pacing, And but the characters are, uh, that was my thing that I had the biggest beef with, um, talked at length in the first one. Um, there isn't a little more attention to the characters themselves, um, especially like our villains, um, I actually uh, kind of got my wish with like some more nuances to the villains, especially when we get on the whaler ship. Um, I actually wanted a scientist that was conflicted for doing kind of uh, evil adjacent things. And, and we got that. So that's kind of and so there are things there that I'm really enjoying. But then but then when you zoom out, OK, thousand foot view is the story any better is the story any more memorable and it just kind of feels like we were going around very like episodic even within the film of like now we're with the whales some more and now we're with the the sea tribe and now we're with these people and now we have the big set piece and all of this stuff and then did that tie into something at the end of the day 
Um, and then the answer is we will see because we don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't know. Um, so, yeah, visually, I mean, you can see the pores on their faces, like yeah. the water, the water glistening <laughs> on their blue skin, <laughs> hair I, on their skin. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Just. Yeah, you can't, there is no difference between human actors. I am so excited to watch like whatever technical featurette, two hour, five hour, 10 hour miniseries. I'm there for it because I want to know what was real and what was fake uh, in terms of like what's actually the effects and what was um, actually done practically. And that I'm very intrigued by that, almost more so than the film itself. And that kind of speaks for itself a bit. Mm -hmm. So, Man, I just wish we lived in a world where you can have nice things. I, I wish we lived in a world where people saw Avatar one and were like, "Yeah, let's keep let's keep running that football down." Instead of Disney being like, "What if we took the technology and just instead of focusing on quality, just pumped out as much content?" Uh, con content. Yes, thank you. That's actually a great way to put it. As much content as we could, because it's not just film; it's also television, and also the MCU is basically a very expensive TV a season of TV anyway. So Absolutely. you know, like, it's oh no, it uh, learned that lesson from the MCU about how every film just leads into the next one, and nothing's ever done. Like, I mm -hmm. mean, one would think that five is like the end, like no more Avatar. Yeah, it's all he has planned for now. For now, for season one. Right. Oh, yeah, no. It's phase one of the Avatar Extended universe. Cinematic I, Universe. I mean, listen, season one of uh, the MCU was 11, was 11 years long. So, you know, it's not out of the question. Uh, listen, I I actually do think the story is better. Not tremendously better, but honestly, the, the biggest part is rewatching Avatar 1. I'm like, and I, I knew I wasn't going to be crazy about it. I was like, yeah, this story... I didn't really love it the first time. I really don't love it now, but gosh, the visuals are so cool. I do, even though the characters are very archetype, archetypal, I, I love them. I I thought um, like uh, Quaritch is just such a bad, great evil Marine. I, like I love all that stuff. Here, I, I think we replace the trope of the white savior with more of a family drama, more of a family adventure, Swiss family Robinson sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me is just, infinitely more interesting and fun to watch because mm -hmm. because it's something about the derivative versus not derivative. I don't really care about that. It's that I feel like we're exploring some really emotional themes here that don't bring kind of hollow. Whereas with, you know, the last film, it's like, oh, I have to learn how to be the ways of the, these people and X, Y, Z. You just never, I just never bought it. Right. And I, I think a lot, I think most people didn't really buy it. Not only because it was familiar, but because it's just a bad trope. Uh, versus here, I really loved uh, Jake Sully. Still not a super interesting character, but the things that are interesting about him, he's a father. And seeing him parent and have to like try to articulate like the lessons he, he he's learned in the past to these kids, I just found it, it added a layer of dimension to him that was missing. I think uh, Zoe Saldana as Natiri. Again, Natiri still kind of sidelined more than I would have liked, but man, yeah. Zoe yeah. Saldana shows up. Yeah. So yep. She like she's get, she gets a couple of money scenes in this movie, and she just she just really nails it. This is one I actually will look forward to revisiting. Versus the first one, I honestly have very little interest, especially after revisiting it before. I have very little interest in going back to the first one, especially now that we have this one, which I feel like again not a masterpiece, not not, not like some well written crazy uh, A plus uh, blockbuster story, not like an Aliens or a Terminator One or a Terminator Two, but it's more than serviceable, I would hope, uh, the man protecting and his family and, and sort of the survival or being hunted story holds up better than what we got in the last film. For that, I would say I think this is a good movie. 
I don't think the first movie is actually a good movie. I think the first movie is a great experience. I don't think it's a very good movie. Sure. Uh, I think this movie, this uh, Avatar The Way of Water is an A++ like 15 out of 10 experience and probably like a 5 or 6 out of 10 movie. On, if I'm being honest, you know, so it's like uh, the storytelling, it's it's simplified. It, you know, the character's still a little archetypal, although, again, Quaritch gets some a really nice uh, little twist uh, with his character. Um, and I'm excited to see more, which, again, at the end of Avatar 1, even though it seemed as a, like a foregone conclusion we were going to get more based off of the success, I was like, I guess I'll, get, I'll, I guess I'll watch the sequel when it finally comes out. I'm actually excited about 3. Like I'm like, yeah, bring on three. Let's let's watch the next chapter. Let's see where they go. Let's see what the next episode brings. Uh, they introduce enough elements here to sort of see the next movie. Uh, we get some really interesting stuff with Jake Sully's adopted daughter, who was <laughs> so we get the wonky sci-fi. The adopted daughter, played by Sigourney Weaver, who was born of uh, in quotes immaculate conception. Again, I don't think that's the case. We'll get into that later. But, uh, I found that everything I did with that character to be really compelling. So yeah, lots to look forward to. With that in mind, I, I would be curious, Sunrise, to get your take. You mentioned sort of the. The representation, uh, indigenous mm-hmm. representation of the first mm-hmm. film to be mm-hmm. problematic and, and not, not uh, in good taste in the first film. Do you think they handle it better in this film? I do think they handle it better just based on the idea that nobody's jumping into an indigenous body. I feel like that. They skirt around that. There's some uh, appropriation that I, I, I never know where I sit with science fiction. You know, like this happens with other science fiction films and fantasy films where they kind of take pieces. And I kind of wish there was something that were less uh, appropriated in those actions of like the design, even though they look cool. And some of the, um, uh, I guess, maybe the way the mannerisms and the language. Uh, but overall, I feel like the there are things that I identify as an indigenous person or I'm like, I understand what they're talking about here. And I feel like that is something that I didn't necessarily completely have all the time in the first one. I think there are a couple of things like the tree is something I was like, I really understand that. Or like the, those like uh, spirit white floating things. I was like, yeah, I understand that. Um, and so there are more moments of that in this film and I feel like he's able to kind of address, I don't know how, how intentional that was or if it's accidental. Um, but it felt like those things I was, um, much more aware of going into this film and I felt like they weren't as problematic with me sitting through some of them. Um, and I'll get to some of those uh, later cause I think there's like, they're really stitched into some of the story for me. Um, so I was a little bit more comfortable with it, uh, but it's better, but not great. Yeah. yeah. But, and I understand you know, science fiction is a really difficult thing. I had the same response with Wakanda forever. I was like, this is all well-intentioned. I feel like there's a little bit of appropriation. I feel like there's, even though they like, identify specifically some of these cultures, uh, there's something about just the, the idea of it at the start that somehow I have a difficulty with. And, th- and there's something to be said about like how often, like, I mean, could the Navi not just be like, alien humanoid life forms without right. without having similarities to Native American culture. Yeah. Why do you have to have that for it to be intelligible to the audience? Because I, mean, I really think there's a universe where the Navi could have been as expansive and what have you, but have it just be something created out of yeah. Out of, you know, I mean, pure Star originality Trek, or Star Trek does it all the time. Yeah. Like they have so many alien species that are humanoid two legged 
people yeah. that, you know, they, yeah. the romantic lead has a love interest in. That happens all the time. They but... literally use bow and arrows. You know, yeah. like, it's, <laughs> like, it's just, it's like, yeah. you, you tell me these aren't Native American yes. people that are blue. Is that's what I'm well, saying? And they, yeah. the, some of the mannerisms you mentioned earlier, Sunrise, even the way they like shout and scream. Yes. And then, and the, is that like the only the, way to do it? <laughs> the tattoos in this one, you know, like are taken from like yeah. Polynesian indigenous yeah. backgrounds. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know that like they're I'm not of that background, but I, I have a feeling that yeah. they would find that similarly uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, also Kate Winslet, who's great, but also having Kate Winslet play a Pacific Islander <laughs> yes. Right, yes. Right, yes. character. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Choices, yeah. I say. Yeah. yeah, she's great, but you know, like there's that Scarlett Johansson issue, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that actually brings me to uh Jenny Nicholson uh, of YouTube fame. She did a video essay about Pandora the theme park. Um, and she brought up as a matter of cultural appropriation how strange it was that in the gift shop you can buy these items that are like tribal beads and headdresses and things right. like that. And it's like, oh, but it's okay because it's Navi. Yeah, and it's, like, it's fabricated. When is this actually the like the ladies at Coachella kind of stuff, you know? And it's just exceptionally <laughs> uncomfortable. <Yeah. laughs> All of it. I, I also have to say, sorry, Alex, I don't want to cut you oh, off. Oh, yeah, yeah but go for it. Similarly, it's not necessarily related to the indigenous aspect, but the, I, the way that Avatar has been like, promoted like the the avatar frosted flakes crossover those avatar eggs you sent me a photo of uh alex isn't it weird Christmas you, ornaments. About this. Uh, Christmas oh, oh, yeah. ornaments. You, you gotta go find it in the grocery store uh I, in fact there's one at the walmart across the street okay. the avatar frosted flakes they're blue like it, it, like Tony the Tiger's on the box with the Navi. I, I'm not even making this I up. I don't know about this. You can buy Kinder <laughs> eggs that the prize inside, I guess, is. I will look at them. A Navi. Well, it does feel weird. It's like, do you eat a Navi egg? Is that like they don't? Well, they, they don't have eggs. <laughs> well, they're mammals. Just, it seems like they're mammals. They're mammals. That's right. It seems like it's the weird contradiction though of like. The first film and this film by extension is like, yeah, look at how awful humans are just running the planet to the ground by wasting all these resources on frivolous things. And it's like, but you guys made Avatar <laughs> Frosted Flakes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, this is. Yeah. I, it's just, you know, those weird things, especially now that Disney owns it. It's like, I just feel like we're going to see way more of this weird, like, yeah. cognitive dissonance in between the message of the story and the way it's marketed and sold by the corporate overlords. Anyway, can continue. No, the and again, theme park stuff. Um, so one of the big rides in the theme park is like a flight ride. And then the whole plot of the flight ride is you're basically doing what Jake did, but now they've made it mass marketable. So you don't even really have to have like the great skills to be able to ride uh, the dragon of choice. Uh, you just plug in and then now you are. Woo! And then you're out. And it's it's just uh, bad taste is just all over that stuff. Uh, yeah. I guess, again, it just goes back to that weird thing. I'm like, does James James Cameron, I'm sure, has it in, like, in the contracts that he, can, he signs off on all this stuff. But I'm also like, this feels like you're missing the point of your own movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. It the, Again, cognitive distance is weird. How about the special effects? Let's gush on those for a second. That HFR, swimming with the whales. Man, it's so cool. It's so cool. This is where this is the aspect of the story I love. <laughs> you know, this is the, <laughs> this is the part of it that I could like again. Like if if this was its own ride or its own thing or what have you, minus how that one was constructed yeah. that you mentioned, Alex. <laughs> but well, then, they they, you know. they invented well they they built cameras so they could film underwater, and it sounds like a gimmick. And I mean, technically, like I guess it is a gimmick, but it's a really cool gimmick. Whenever yeah. whenever you are not able to distinguish 
I think even a very discerning eye is going to have a very hard time distinguishing what is CG, what is real, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. uh, like what what did they film in the tank versus what was on a screen. Like yeah. the the way they cross cut real people in some of these scenes with the Navi in and out of the water, it's just mind blowing. Yeah. But uh, not only like so, so so that you have the art direction, you have all that. It, it's all really well put together in a James Cameron and used for various James Cameron action set pieces. Uh, which is the other thing outside of, yeah, not only does it look, it's not just eye candy. I feel like he really knows how to deliver on really awesome action sequences. We get a really cool one at the beginning. And there's a little train heist thing. We get uh, the huge whaling scene later in the movie. Uh, I don't know if we needed it, but it was really cool. <laughs> it was the saddest thing. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's there's lots of lots to be said about uh, the VFX and the, and the visuals. Uh, Alex, did you think uh, they lived up to the hype? Yeah, and to the point where it's kind of coming full circle, where it's like they're so good. It's like I had a point in the movie where I looked at the waves and I'm like, oh yeah, those could be fake waves. They could be not real waves. Right. Like I forgot that it could. There was stuff in here that was like built on a computer that wasn't literally shot. And so now, because it's so good and so seamless and so lifelike, you're like, okay, now I can say, great, that's that's great. But now I can actually look better at the story, the characters and all of that stuff. So it's like it it almost does its job so well that you don't even have anything to critique anymore because it looks like real skin, real people interacting with each other. Okay. It's fantastic as I mean, you know, we're beyond fantastic because it's like you can't even be like me critiquing. It's like, are you sitting in this car- chair, Caleb? Like, you know, that's kind of what it He's feels in a like. Tank I, somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And you're it's just being CG. CG'd <laughs> in screen. right now, you know. Um, so that's what it feels like. Um, the water stuff. My God. That's. Whew. It's almost yeah. like it's almost like he went. I mean, it, it, it looks so good. Obviously, we know it's not real. But like it looks of of the vein of like if he and like a documentary crew just like went like yeah. some of the yeah. especially the sequences where they're just looking at like the wildlife and stuff. Yes, it, that's how realistic it looks. It and like photorealistic. Flare, the lens flare in the water mm-hmm. on the camera. Just, the oh, scene crazy. where the camera's yeah. in the water, in the water looking up. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, just incredible. Laurent, uh, did, did the VFX live up? The, the VFX definitely gave me a full buffet of of. Of a variety, a garden variety of things I needed to go to see a spectacle, you know, 13 years in the making. That's where it seems like all the work went. And so if I was basing it on that aspect of it alone, it is it's a technical achievement. And I do think that it's it's something of the moment. And, you know, and we'll 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 feed off of this for as long as we can until, you know, the dust settles and the allure settles and. You know, and we decide, well, I guess in two more years, because that's when we're supposed to get the third film. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see it. We'll, we'll see, see it in two, two years. more years. Yeah. Like if we're still we still have this urge or hunger to return and, and 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 see more of it. You know, if there's anything new to evolve in two more years, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I think on that aspect alone, it is it is uh, very impressive. Yeah. What do you think about James Cameron's action sequences in the film? I think he's a skillful action director. That's that's where I that's what I think he does best. I don't think he's a, necessarily a skillful storyteller. And you know, but that's, you know, that's again, some films are better than others, you know that he's done. Um I believe he's the sole writing credit on Titanic. You know what I mean? Like which again, you know, Hollywood weepy, but I think those characters are more dynamic and more and more, you know, um, three dimensional and, and iconic than some than some of the nondescript characters in these Avatar movies. You know, like where Kate Winslet, you bring her back into the fray of, of you know with uh, working with James Cameron, and then 
I don't think she says anything substantial or unique in this movie. No, in fact, when I told uh, Alex, I, I turned to my fiance Lauren, and I think I said them to you. I was like, "Oh yeah, and Kate Winslet was was cool. It was good to see her back." And you guys were like, "Wait, she was in the movie?" Right. And I was I, like, I, "Yeah." I, I just don't think she had enough moment. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of other characters that are the, the time got divided, but I do think she was a little very shortchanged here. I can't think of a moment that she had where that was memorable to me, and I was excited to see a new act. You know, that actress into this universe and so it's just it that was you know one of those things she was able to hold her breath for six and a half minutes during the filming of this movie okay well no isn't that just insane that like is actors insane. train themselves <laughs> to to not breathe for that long it's yeah. just it's it's wild yeah i wonder uh, if the tips that the children uh the island children were teaching our forest navi are like accurate that would be interesting to know like the in terms of like breathing like mm-hmm. it's calming your heart rate and all that stuff mm-hmm. that's just a random i i, I guarantee you it's a it, what they wrote was some version of what the instructors probably were actually <laughs> yeah. telling him. I'm serious. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, now, is it accurate? I don't know. I'm sure they fluffed it up or shortened sure. it or whatever, but I'm sure that there's some truth in there. Yeah. Sunrise, did you think the uh, VFX lived up in this? It's a good question. I uh, d- Definitely in the HFR. That's where like the HFR was really working for me. I was like, oh, I believe in this in a way that uh, I don't see a lot of effects working in other films that are not HFR. Um, and uh, it's like those moments of like the fish, like the school of fish, uh, definitely the whales. Um, the 3D technology in relation to HFR really continue to convince me that uh, um, it, it, the effects work in this film are very similar to sound fully designed to me, where it's like the height of it really is about texture and collision of textures. And that's where I really start to believe in like the magic of it, like the waves that you're talking about are rocks, when the hair is moving through the water or the air. Um, and like that was probably the best part of the visual effects for me. Um, but the, everything else has is lingering under the, under the specter of George Lucas to me. And everything really since Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones feels like it's always sort of like trying to replicate or go back to that. I don't know if it's just because these people are partly working on these films. Uh, there's a heavy air of just animation to me, really. And this is not a bad thing because I think we have a tendency to somehow Disney has put us in this position where we're thinking about animation with live actors as if it's a live action film with animated characters like Roger Rabbit. But really, I think it's the other way around where it's like live action characters are now in an animated environment. And this is really more along the lines of what I think is like replacing anime. And I feel like this is what I call America, American anime. Coin that now. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, like Disney's had a a stake in this since the beginning, like this 3D tech Mm -hmm. replacing very simply and it's gotten a little bit better. And this is very similar to the Lion King to me. 3D. The, the 3D released. Lion King. Yeah, yeah. Where like the environment was really amazing. I was like, this is real. Uh, the textures are real. The the fur is real. Where it started to break down for me was in the performances. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The motion tracking of the faces is not quite as at the height of like the texture mapping it animation. It embodied from, from the – it's like watching an actual lion and you just put a little – Mouth, you put a mouth, yeah. little mouth on it, and it's like, yeah, that's that's uh, mm-hmm. that's a phone app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to your point though, Disney has been the studio 
who has pushed this sort of tech for a long time. We've seen it in Star Wars quite a bit. Uh, you go back to uh, actually just turned six years old, uh, Rogue One, where they they brought Peter uh, Cushing, mm-hmm. the, his likeness, back mm-hmm. you know, from the grave. And obviously, it wasn't right there yet. But I feel like they're to your point. They're constantly like, we're we're one of these days we're gonna get it. You know, one of these days they will, and they really will because they, they get will. close every time. You're like more concerned about the overuse of animation. Well, I guess when I when I'm walking into a film and I'm being told it's a live action film, ah, okay. yeah. that I'm more critical of how the animation doesn't match reality. Yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah. if I went into like the Lion King or the Avatar and I'm being told it's an animation film, I'm gonna more focus on the things that they are getting right rather than the things that they're not matching. You know what? That actually brings this question. So Oscars categories, like would what's the threshold was like any have any of the live action? I say in big air quotes, Mm -hmm. Disney animated. Have those been in animation category? If any have been nominated, probably none of them. Well, it's interesting. That's a very that's a debatable thing. Every year, you know, just like with like, do you include a movie like avatar with production design like it versus just vfx you know and that's i mean people will make an argument for that like is it practical like is it was there what is the what was the universe that was created that was not done in a in a computer you know like in and there's a case to be made of whether that should be considered production design or not you know because they are creating a production but it's just in a in you know on a computer versus on in in a, a living space and so I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a you raise it. I think I think Lion King was a perfect example because you know how many people. I mean, I'm sure we all had friends and maybe even thought this like, oh, we're, I want to go see the live action Lion King. It's, there's not a single thing about this that's live action. Not <laughs> yeah. a single thing. Yeah, but just, like, just we Mowgli. Just, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Only Mowgli. <laughs> but yes, the way they market it, you know, they they the way they market it, it's like, oh, it's the real version or whatever. Yeah. Um, but also, I I'm pretty sure. Listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. Lion King was not nominated for best animated film. Uh, well, no. sorry, the the, the oh, 3D yeah. remake was yeah, not yeah. nominated. I don't believe it was. I don't believe either of them were. I don't. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I don't think. The, well, that's a shame. I, I, that that first a, one's a that, shame. That is a shame. <laughs> well, uh, here's another example. Um, this actually came up with the uh, film Oklahoma Film Critics Circle group. Is Marcel the Shell with the Shoes on a live action or an animated film? And the Academy did classify it did, as yeah. an animated film. Yeah. Uh, you know, so but there's a lot of real people and real stuff in that movie. So right. you know, it's like I, it's like people are selective about which ones they will you know accept as one as such and like and then won't you know so that's interesting for sure but it, but it is going all the way back to sunrise what you were saying how we think about how successful the film was visually is going to depend on is this an animated film that happens to have some real people in it or is this a live action film that uses animation i mean at the end of the day it's a disney movie to me at the end of the day it's a disney animated movie it's got royalty that talks to animals oh yeah yeah it's an animated movie. And just based on that, I'm like, I'm very impressed. It's when I start to think about like performance and, and facial motion capture. I'm like, <laughs> that's the thing is like, is it's all done and giving a great performance or are we looking at some really cool? I actually don't think is it an animator. I think she actually is giving a great performance. I, 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 I think agree. so too. Yeah. I think, I so. think that was a hypothetical, but yes, I but cannot yeah. say the same about like half a large portion of the rest of the cast, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. particularly oh. the lead. Oh, uh, yeah. Sam yeah. Just, Bless okay. his heart. Yeah. yeah. He's trying. <laughs> he Bless is. his heart. They, sho- they shove him off screen so much, like, which is great, but it's just like. <laughs> well, that, that actually, to your point, though. Yeah. Uh, this film 
is clearly going back to the story piece. It, it is setting up sequels. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think it does right is, all right, Jake Sully is now a parent. All right, that's more interesting. When he's not being a parent, he's not on screen. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like sideline mm-hmm. him. And, and they're clearly setting up for the kids to be the main characters <laughs> yes. in the future yeah. movies. Yeah. And I mean, most of the kids, not all of them, but I would say most of the kids, there's at least something about them that I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. I want to I go deeper on this. I never one time in the first movie was like, I got to know Jake Sully better. I, I was like, I don't that's care. That's true. He's, I think we got it to know him as much as we could. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all there was yeah. to learn about yeah. Jake Sully. It <laughs> makes one wonder, like, what had, how this played out had Matt Damon actually been the character. He's a better actor, so I don't, but I don't know if it's just the character, Wait, the way the character is written. They wanted to cast Matt Damon as Sully? Matt Damon had a 10% stake in the the whole franchise like they like he offered that to him in exchange of doing the role and he wow. said no to it now that was before it was the the record-breaking movie that it was now he's beating himself up about not having all of that oh. but that's at 2009 you know and he's probably being asked in what 2006 7 right where no there, there's not this large amount of work that's all green screen which is all it is today for studio work you know i'm sure he was like i don't want to be trapped in the studio all day I want to be on the field, which is pretty much what he does. Yeah. I want to use that just to talk about. I'm not going to go too far because we talked. Alex and I talked about this quite a bit in our um, review of Avatar One as it relates to VFX. But the way movies are made today are just fundamentally different than they were in 2009. Especially if yeah, you go back to 2006. And that's pre any MCU. I mean, gosh, what Batman Begins was 2005. Uh, X Men Three had come out in 2000. Like it wasn't. Yeah. It was before we were really using. It's like King Kong is like the big yeah. marker there. Lord of the Rings. Had Lord of the been, Rings was probably absolutely. a big one. Just yeah. finished. Mm-hmm. And then there was the Star Wars prequels that had just wrapped up, which mm-hmm. did use a lot of green screen. However, uh, although I will go to the bat for those movies, separate podcast. Um, Me too. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people critique the use of green screen, like the overuse of the green screen in those films. So I think, you know, can you blame Matt Damon? Right, because the reason he said no was because he was busy with the Bourne films, a very viable, marketable, yeah. we successful have got franchise. The Ultimatum, and that's arguably the best one. So I don't, you know. So yeah. can you blame he, him? It wasn't bad necessarily for us. Like you know, the movie did fine without him, but it, it would be curious to know what it would have been like. I'm going to talk about this much more in depth in spoilers, but um, I'm I love how stunning this movie looks. It makes also makes me deeply sad how, as Alex and I talked about in our previous episode. How it appears that the, the the corporate studio overlords took all the wrong lessons from the tech, and instead of focusing on pushing tech forward and, and innovation, really said how much how much as I said earlier, how much stuff can we produce? And I really think it's lowered the bar collectively. Yeah. Like if you go back and watch the um, my, my favorite example is uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest. Davy Jones still looks from two thousand five looks on par, if not better, than most MCU CG. There's, there's some exceptions, of course, but I would say, and that's 2005, and we in 2009, James Cameron blows the lid off of what's possible, and I still feel like that's the bar. I mean, uh, until this movie comes out, The Way of Water, I still feel like that's the bar. In terms of the, and the, the visual effects. The looks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just, I hope with the release of this film, this reignites a passion for pushing tech, and that we can figure out new innovative ways to use the tech and apply it to, not superhero films, just, you know, just, just. Uh, how can we create new worlds and reimagine things? And how can they use this in Star Wars? Which again, Star Wars used to be 
thanks to George Lucas, would always push the tech forward. Whereas uh, since Disney bought it, it's been kind of like, eh, it's passable. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't ever look bad. It just it's, looks okay. It's serviceable. It's it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's McDonald's. McDonald's. It's the same every oh. time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you're getting exactly what you thought you were right. getting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, also the VFX industry is, uh, at this point, uh, very documented how overworked uh, those people are right now and underpaid. So um, all that said, uh, do we want more Pandora stories? Are we up for Avatar 3? I've, I've already put it out there. I'm ready for Avatar 3. Bring it on. Sunrise? Do I want? I don't know if I want, but I, I don't normally get what I want. I just sort of like take what's given to me. It's <laughs> <laughs> <He's> so agreeable. <laughs> Here's what I want. I just want to be in a theater with like movies where people are doing something interesting. So I'll be there. Um, I'm interested to see where it goes. I like long form storytelling, so I'm I'm waiting to see what will happen. So I'm not excited, but I'll be there opening day. I get it. That's how I feel about literally every Marvel film. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I guess I gotta keep going to these so I can be in the conversation. <laughs> to be in the conversation. But yeah. man, I am like That's lessons. really why we go to the movies, right? <laughs> Forget what Ken, uh, Nicole Kidman's saying. You know, like, <laughs> all, we're right. here for the conversation. <laughs> I, I, Who cares about heartbreak? <laughs> <laughs> God. On that note though, I one thing I didn't note is how Alex, at least in our theater, rip roaring great time. People yes. were cheering, people yeah. were clapping. There was one moment in particular that we'll talk about in spoilers that during a really ep- part of the epic third act action sequence where the entire crowd literally went like bonkers. It was amazing. Yes. And yes. just just being in that energy yeah. is yeah. something special and it's it's very rare that happens anymore. Maybe it happened with Endgame a little bit. It's happened with a couple of the Star Wars movies. Spider-Man. Like, sp- oh, yeah, yeah. Spider-Man. That and was for it. kids, like, look, you know, kids go in the movie theaters, like, if it, if it provides something for them in that way, if it inspires some kind of imaginative, like, then that's enough for me. You know what I mean? Um, we can be problematic on the sidelines, you know, talking about individual pieces, but if it, if it gave that, you know, that kind of, um, and you know, that uplift or enthusiasm uh, for creative creativity, then that's great. Mm. But, Lawan, is that enough to make you want to go to number three? Um, I'm about where Sunrise is, maybe like one um, like lateral adjacent 5% m- <laughs> move up higher than he is, but... But yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, I'll be there. I'll be there. Um, I, I feel like after three hours of watching, three hours and 12 minutes of watching this, there was a point where I was like, I had had my fill and there was nothing else they could show me that I, I get it. It's pretty, but it's like at some point you're, you're done swimming and you're tired and your legs are, you know, you, you you're ready to go home. Not when you swim with James Cameron, man, and he's so, going to push you harder. And that's the thing. Is like, well, there was a question of like, too, like when he was like, I don't want anyone to complain about how long this movie is after we spent 13 years making it. You can, and, you know, but then the thing is like, when do you go to the bathroom? And the thing, and the truth is at any point, because here's the thing is like, if you miss this cool, this cool ocean sequence, guess what? In 15 minutes, you're going to get another really cool ocean sequence, and it's going to look pretty much well, as impressive that, as the last it one. It does so. speak to the pacing of the movie, which is, uh, we. I don't think we have, any of us mentioned this, but it, it it is a long movie, and I will admit, I felt the runtime, but I was never bored, and I never looked yeah. at my watch. That is, a, I, I definitely felt by the end of the third hour, I was like, all right. Time uh, to go. Yeah, Let's but, wrap it up. But I also wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm bored. Yeah. Just, you know, so... Kudos to the pacing, I would say. Sunrise, did you, you say something? Oh, well, I was going to say, uh, I did have this problem with the bathroom. I was like, well, I, I drank too much 
uh, and hour one went by. I was like, oh, mm, when am I going to go? When am I going to go? When am I going to go? But it kept me engaged enough to realize maybe I should be sticking around. And I stayed the whole movie. Impressive. Yeah. That was screening one. When I came back, though, uh, I hit that wall. I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I'm done. The second time, did you feel the pacing? So so the, the pacing, you really felt the runtime more the second time. I definitely felt it in the third act. I think it's I think it's a better, like technically paced part of the film. I think it's better than the the first part of the film. Yeah. But I had spent so much time. I just spent my time already. And I was, mm-hmm. you know. I will say that again, uh, without being too spoilery, there is a very um robust, cool, sad scene that involves uh whale hunting, essentially. Uh, at the beginning of the third act or end of the second act somewhere in there. And it's like 20, 15, 20-ish minutes long. Again, I want to reiterate, great just experience. Like the, the watching experience is incredible. And it does provide some world building as well. I should note that. However, looking at it, you're like, if something was going to go, because it comes at a point, it's not quite the climax. It's before the climax. And you're like, if something was going to go, that's probably the thing that could they could have lost and been just as fine from a story perspective. I felt like they could have lost the first act. Yeah. Because it was it really was a previously on. That's really what yes, I felt like. Absolutely. 110%. And it was 40 minutes of that. So at least 40 minutes. You know, so, yeah, I agree. I, it, it still looked good, but it, but I, I they're literally rehashing the three hour movie that yeah. came. There's literally <laughs> there. There is quite literally. And this happens at the beginning. There is a video of Colonel Corridge saying, all right, if you're watching, it felt kind of like the beginning of like a, a ride at a theme park. All right, so here's what you need to know. Here's the story. If you, Just in case you missed it, here's what happened. Uh, and then they make it all fun, and G- Giovanni Ribisi shows up for a cameo, and it was great. And then, uh, But, um, yeah, it's it's weird. That, that The way the very recappy, rebooty Force Awakens. I mean, people have been comparing this to The Force Awakens, which I actually don't. 100% agree with, but at the same time, if, if you were going to do it, Act 1 is absolutely where they're doing that a bunch. Yeah. Alex, yeah. Avatar 3, are you ready? Well, I, I want to see it because I am curious on some of the line the plot lines that we left unanswered, so they got me. Good job, boys, you got me. So I'm going to go see it, but I, I don't know. I, what else? I want to see some new ideas <laughs> I think that's kind of where I'm at like I just want to see where like I I, I mean because like whenever we get into the plot about um why the the why the colonizers have come back to the planet like I because like that's like okay so I just want to see new ideas that's just I just want new ideas. I hope I get new ideas in my Avatar 3. I do wonder if they're setting up certain characters. They, they seem to be setting up certain characters for long-running plot arcs that have me really intrigued. Um, I think yeah. you can say that with, with Korich. I won't reveal what other characters, but there's a couple of these where you're like, oh, these these they're doing the, this character's in for the long haul. Yeah. And um, I'm excited to see where they get with that. I also, the, the last little caveat that that uh, really makes me want to see more movies from Pandora, and we'll probably get into this more in spoilers as well. Um, 
Guys, we live in a time where everything is cynical in our stories. Everything's meta. There's so much cynicism. You think of the MCU is actually very cynical. And I mean cynical. It doesn't mean it's not happy and fun. It's that, like, people make fun of stuff all the time. For example, Spider-Man No Way Home makes fun of the name Otto Octavius because, like, oh, that's silly. I'm like, guys, there's three Spider-Men from three dimensions in your movie. That's silly. Like, it's it's all, everything's like. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, James Cameron is very earnest in what he's doing. And. Are some of the lines corny? Yeah. Is there a part of the movie where a whale is speaking and it's in uh, uh, papyrus. <laughs> a papyrus on the screen? <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, it's kind of wonky. It's kind of silly. You know what else is wonky and silly and sincere? Space wizards with laser swords. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. Little yeah. halflings dropping a ring into a volcano. It really, I think the thing that it sets apart for me more than the VFX, the other main thing is there is sincerity and earnestness and the goals and the story and the environmental underpinnings of the film that, yeah, we might, I just feel like we've gotten so used to making fun of it. We take for granted that Mm -hmm. it's a thing, but Lord of the Rings was that way. The original star Wars trilogy was that way. And we, we definitely are not getting it in all the superhero movies that we're watching Um, from either Zack Snyder verse or MCU. And that reminded me of one other thing that I'm thankful for Avatar is that it is a wholly original IP. We are not getting regurgitated anything. We have not seen another Spider-Man origin story. This is actually new. The first thing in the first movie is based on itself and for which is unfortunate, I guess. um, um, But, you know, the fact that we have built a new world. I like that. And we don't get that enough anymore, Um, which that makes in 2009. We probably wouldn't have said that, though. Like in 2009, I think we did take it for granted that it's like, oh, these are new, new ish ideas. Mm -hmm. At least they're they are trying. (laughs) They're they're putting money behind something that is not a proven property. Exactly. It doesn't have a Star Wars or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or any of that stuff. So but now that's all we get, which is sad. Mm -hmm. That leads me to letter grades, though. What letter grade are we going to give the film? Alex, I'll start with you. I'm going to kind of stick with my exact same review from the first podcast, which I said B with a question mark, (laughs) because, again, it's a solid like C to C minus. But then the VFX raise it a letter grade for me. So that's kind of where I sit with it. All right. B. LaRon Chapman. Giving us an emphatic B as well like this feels like a there's too much good in the technical aspect of this to dismiss and say it's not impressive that there wasn't work done that there wasn't time spent creativity you know implored so i i so that being said i give it a b um and i'm i'm confident that my b will stay there i don't think it'll climb up i don't think it'll climb down I think it'll stay right there, and I will allow this to be a three and a half movie, three and a half star movie for me. Sunrise? When I look at movies and I have to um, evaluate them officially, I kind of have like a little rubric. And mathematically, it came out to a, a 61 out of 100%. <laughs> for me. Oh, wow. So that's a mathematical D. You gave it a D. Dang. All but, right. Yeah, but it's very harsh. But, uh, you know, like I'm comparing it to like, world cinema and like masters like i don't know citizen kane and i don't know oh, who else yeah okay so you're putting this on <laughs> that great that track and i appreciate that because it's important to remind everyone that these these <laughs> movies are popcorn fun blockbusters they are not like works i mean <laughs> right, yeah, they're not. i mean careful they're not like 
causing us to reevaluate uh, our life or, yeah. or yeah. 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 there's no works cited page <laughs> yeah. and so yeah. 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 yeah no one's gonna be quoting uh, Avatar The Way of Water in 25, 50, citations. years citations right. I don't yeah. know Caleb I see you man I see you <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean I gave it a mathematical D but I probably that doesn't really feel right it, I like I would probably give it more like a C minus because I feel like there's a lot of effort and I'm, I don't know what the full picture is and that could probably bump up you know like once I see the bigger picture could get probably closer to a B is my guess if there's things that are working the way that I feel like they could but I don't know I don't know it's a risk it's a risk yeah, this is a tricky for uh, one for me because, like I said earlier, uh, a plus 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 for experience. You, I, I'm I'm saying this because listeners go see this movie, and if if you think you may ever want to see this movie, go see it in a big screen right now with a full audience. Because it like when you get in there and the crowd's cheering and people are into it, and you're you're experiencing these effects that you've never experienced before with with the most cutting edge tech and art direction. You can see all the money on the screen. You have to see it the way it was intended. And I know that feels like a sales pitch. And I know it feels like James Cameron's got a gun pointed in my head when I say that. He's under the table. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I really do believe that. I don't think it's going to be nearly as strong at home. I think the story is just okay at best. So like the story, similar to Avatar. I think actually, I think Avatar 1, I gave like a D for story. Probably should have given it an F, honestly. But get a D for story. This one, I give a solid C. C question mark for story. (laughs) A++ for experience. So where does that land me? Um, B plus? Yeah. Overall, I Mm -hmm. gave it four stars on Letterboxd, and I feel strong about that. Like LeBron, you said. I don't feel like my opinion is going to waver on it that much in the years. It's magical experience. Okay. Movie that said, if listeners want to watch other works or or it could be film, television, novels, music, video games, uh, what other media recommendations will we give to listeners who enjoy avatar at the way of water sunrise? I'll start with you. I mean, this really made me think about some uh, masters of um, just effects work and I feel like Prometheus is a film that I always try to incorporate, yes. <laughs> particularly in relation to the 3D. I feel like that was like really when it came out the height of 3D and almost maybe the best example of the use of 3D. 100%. And um, I feel like it's sort of like the Citizen Kane of 3D a little bit. And it just went out the window. Nobody like was into the idea of what was doing with the franchise. So I think people just didn't take advantage of it. So that and then Dune, I would say. I feel like the new Dune – uh, I would love to see what Villeneuve would do with this technology mm. in a world like that. Yeah. Then I would feel like that would be like an A plus for me. Yes, man, doing so good. But yeah, what what could he do with even more powerful technology? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, great recommendations. Um, and, and, and Sunrise, I'm just gonna say because I don't get to say this very often. Thank you for liking Prometheus. <laughs> I love that. I loved that movie for almost 10 years and everyone everywhere has been like, Caleb, that movie's dumb. That movie's trash. I'm like, I think you guys are missing. Like there's these huge like questions that's begging and you just have to accept that. Yeah. The humans are dumb. That's kind of part of the point of the movie. That's the point of the movie uh, is that humans are constant. Anyway, that's a separate podcast, but you know, there might be a dozen of it, not dozens. There might be a dozen there of might us be a dozen. out there. Yeah. Uh, but thank you for, for calling that movie out. It is a great recommend. I think people should check it out visually. I think it's stunning, but unlike- it's also a good holiday movie. 
Oh, Christmas. Yes, it is. Yeah. Christmas. Christmas. That's right. It's a Christmas movie. Man, see, my favorite Christmas movie is Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I mean, that's a great one. <laughs> I, you know, I did. I, I, you know, as much as I've knocked superhero movies, I, I have had uh, Iron Man 3 playing uh, multiple nights as I watch about 15 minutes a night before I fall asleep. <laughs> also a Christmas movie. Laurent Chapman. Well, Avatar is not a Christmas movie. Um, and so, I mean, it's coming out around Christmas. But, um, I, you know, I agree with Sunrise. He kind of took, he really kind of stole my idea. It was Dune. I was going to say the first part of Dune. Um, because that I feel like it really lays out the foundation of an origin. Like, we didn't even get Zendaya. Like, she's there as this ethereal being in the background. And I was there to see Zendaya. You know, so... Um, but she's but that story in and of itself, you know what I mean? Like it shows how you can create part of a story, have some questions unanswered, mm-hmm. leave enough intrigue to advance the story. So now I am eager to see Dune 2 because there is clearly a lot that we didn't see. But yet there is such interesting characters and ideas and a universe that feels very fully realized and characters that feel very interesting that 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 there's so many threads to of interesting threads to go from. So um doubling down on on Daily Venus uh Dune. Um and obviously previous uh Cameron films. If you're a fan of Cameron, then obviously T two, Titanic, Aliens. Yeah, the Abyss. The even, Abyss. Though, even though you the can't Abyss. watch the Abyss on Blu-ray. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Alex? Yeah, I so the only thing like whenever we're getting our 10th whale sequence on and, and I'm like getting kind of tired of it at this point, all I want to do is like I'm like, I, I just want to put this on the TV at home with my laptop on the couch and just be working with this in the background. And then I was like, wait, I can do that. I'll just go home and watch Blue Planet and then get the same <laughs> sensation. So I'm just going to recommend you go uh, watch like any type of nature documentary. I just think of Blue Planet because of the extensive Disney's oceans <laughs> underwater sequence. Keep it in the family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, keep it in the family. Um, and then because of, uh, to echo Laurent, there is, a, especially because of a sequence later in the third act of this film, uh, Titanic. And you watch this film and you will know why. Mm. The only thing I could do really is compliment your recommendations. I actually think Dune might be the very yeah. best recommendation. And I, again, I like Prometheus a lot. I'm also going to throw out Life of Pi, which is another Ooh, film. Yeah. There is a handful of films that I think actually took the 3D tech that Cameron pioneered with, with Avatar 1 and used it properly. Uh, Prometheus is one. Uh, Scorsese's Hugo is another one I always look back mm, on fondly. Yeah. Life yeah. of Pi. And I like Life of Pi because um, I think it's also based on a novel. Again, Avatar not based off a novel. It feels like it is um, in a lot of ways. Uh, that movie is... Using 3D tech in some really powerful ways, visually just stunning. Uh, and I watched it a couple of years ago at home, and it still holds up pretty well visually. Even 2D, uh, the, the visual effects hold up. Thematically, it's a very spiritual film, sort of exploring the nature of God and creation, uh, which I think Cameron, in his own way, is approaching those themes in the the Avatar franchise as well. So, uh, highly recommend that film. Underrated. I mean, I know it got like a, some awards buzz, and but I just don't feel like people talk about it much anymore. And I think it is uh, one of those adaptations that people said for years was impossible that I actually think Angley nailed. Um, so mm-hmm. it's uh, a very moving character study too. Yes, so. absolutely. So highly recommend life of pie and uh wild card death stranding. Why? Cause there's some badass space whales in that game too. Uh, <laughs> that is, that is, I have to say, Caleb, I usually come up with the wild cards, but that's pretty wild. I'm not going to lie. It's Sharknado. Listen. Okay. Okay. I'm going to get, okay. I'm outside of the weird space whale. Actually, they're more like interdimensional space whales, but we're, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, it's, it has, there is a, a lot of, um, 
aesthetics related to the water and underwater and sea life and stuff that are used throughout the game, but also the way it does world building, I, I really like quite a bit, uh, which is basically, yeah, there's all these cool flashy cutscenes and stuff, but the real meat and potatoes of the game is when you're just like walking around, reading these notes and discovering what other people built or left behind, or you kind of have, uh, when you get to like these safety zones, uh, there's like a, usually a person who's at the, sa- not a person, a video hologram version of this person telling you what happened there and why it went south um usually played by celebrities like conan o'brien um but uh (laughs) but it it was kind of cool the way that i love living in the world of pandora similarly to dune i think that world is one as bleak and awful as it probably would be to be be i love living in that space i love living in the space of uh death stranding as well great world building tech anyway ladies and gentlemen there are recommendations uh, what do you think of the movie? We'd love to hear from you. Avatar The Way of Water. You can send us your uh, feedback uh, on, over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis or, or on Twitter at The Cinematrop. You can also send us emails at uh, The Cinematropolis at gmail.com. With all that said, I think it's time for us to get to our spoiler discussion. Uh, we're going to get to as many things as we can. If you don't want to be spoiled on Avatar The Way of Water, go ahead and tune out now. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. Game over, man. It's game over. We've already been talking for uh, almost an hour and 40 minutes, so we'll try to get to as much of this stuff as we can. There's a lot to dive in in here. But I want to start with uh, this idea of uh, the film as a a family adventure. And and the reason I bring this up is because, as I said in the spoiler-free section, Alex and I, you and I talked about, I think we all agree, the, the white savior story from the first film is just bad. Like it's not, Garbage. doesn't hold up. It's terrible. Like I don't really want to revisit it ever. Um, whereas this film really focuses on the Sully family front. And they, they also center or Colonel Quaritch in the story. There's some wrinkles with that character um, related to, to family and spider. What would you all's take on the sort of like more, I say air quotes, Swiss family Robinson vibe of the story. Uh, Lauren, what was your take on the, the family? Yeah, I think this is where it succeeds. I think this is where, because uh, what's lacking in what I hear a, a perpetual like criticism or critique of Avatar is that the characters are so paper thin. Um, and I think that there's still some issues with that here with certain characters because there's just a, a, a whole lot more that are introduced. Again, I mentioned Kate Winslow, I think, is sidelined to a degree that I did not uh, did not like. Um, but the family dynamic, the brother dynamic, the, you know, like that, family unit when it becomes more insular like that even in a universe as big and in and grand as avatar um it felt uh, it felt more intimate and more engaging and um and the characters feel more rounded and i think like when we're just spending time with them doing their everyday life sort of things that to me is infinitely more interesting than the genre plot points that have to happen in you know that kind of feel like they're working against you know what I mean? The more just simplicity of the universe that, you know, that they're the the ebbs and flows of that space. So, yeah, I think that when they focus on the just the family dynamic, that to me was where it was engaging me, you know, as a story, you know, um, when the visuals, you know, beyond the visuals. So it's funny because I think I've, the thing I've heard in a lot of reviews that I don't disagree with, but it's interesting is the general consensus is, oh, the third act is so great. And I agree. Third act is great. That's where all the big action set pieces happen. 
I, however, really like the second act when you're literally just living in the world. My favorite subplot's probably the one with uh, not the oldest of the Sully kids, but the second oldest when he picks a fight with the the other tribe's leader's kid. And again, it's not really that innovative or crazy. It's just they... I feel the authenticity and the struggle that they're dealing this whole weird, like, Oh, we're family. We stick together. Now we're getting in fights and now I got to go apologize to those guys. And oh, now I, now I'm being attacked by a fish. I don't know that although like the, the really organic family interactions just really wrong. True. I grew up in a family of five, uh, n- not they They have kind of a mixed family. So my family was more just traditional five kids, but I love just the, the sibling back and forth and all that really connected with me uh, big time. Uh, and again, it's not like super original or novel. It's just, yeah. they, I, it's, it's relatable. Much, it's very relatable. And I think the child actors, I, I mean, again, I know they're covered in CG, but they, yeah. they did a pretty good job yeah. in selling and it. And so some of the things that are birthed out of that little, that little, space of the story I found interesting minus the like as we talked about the literal inhabiting of of indigenous people or you know like if we if I'm removing that aspect of it and just focusing on like the fact this is a mixed race family and I relate to that as a mixed race person you know I have people of all different shades in my family I have a white I had a white grandmother I have white cousins you know but then I also have people are in between that and here you have a hybrid of of characters, one that's okay again, immaculate conception, immaculately conceived. But there's, well, yeah, yeah, different type of thing. Not yeah, they're yeah, yeah, not, different yes, things separate. Not, but yeah, but yeah. still, even in that, like just consider that the adopted family member. You know, the adopted family member. Then you have people who are half breeds of these different spaces. I can relate to that on a humanist level, like on a human level. You know, um, you know, just outside of the universe and that. That kept bringing me in because I can understand what that dynamic is like and what that struggle is like, especially how that's perceived by other people who don't see you as fully one thing. You're not fully black. You're not fully white. You live somewhere and you have certain you're afforded certain privileges and you're and you're you're different or you don't have this thing or just things like that. Like your physical features, your tail's not the same. You know, African-Americans are known for having wider noses or or fuller lips or just little things like that that kind of get commented on a lot. I found um, as a emotional, uh, you know, invitation into the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sunrise, how did the family dynamic work for you? Uh, I agree with a lot of these things you guys are saying. I felt like the uh, the most compelling stuff was the family dynamics. In that particular fight, it was one that resonated outward for multiple characters. And I felt like that was the most engaging part of it. Like what, what was going to happen to these characters? How are they going to learn? What was going to result from the way they resolve the tensions, that was probably the most compelling. Um, so those uh, getting to know at least the middle child, the middle male child, and then the Sigourney Weaver character, I think was like the most engaging for me. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the, the design of a family has a lot of potential. Um, I, I didn't really even think about the Swiss family Robinson until you mentioned it. And it, but but it does make me compare to like the Lost in Space reboot yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like there was a great sort of like way we get to know these characters separate on their own. That seems to be what's happening, like with the shark sequence, like the if that is a shark, I don't know what that is, but um, and uh, the result of the fighting here, and then what these children are going to do as they go further, yeah. um, is really interesting. And then what will happen when they come back. Like that's really engaging. Um, 
this uh, issue about race is something that I had difficulty with. This is where I I can't divorce it from like this analogy to like an indigenous family. And there it starts to kind of break apart for me a little bit, just just specifically related to like an indigenous family. They kind of imply that the animals are incorporated into their lifestyle. And uh, there's that one moment where the two brothers fight um, about how one of them is going to go leave to be with the Tolkien that he's engaged with. And the other is like, why are you leaving me? I'm your brother. And he's like, it's my brother. And and that is a concept just generally that I completely understand as an indigenous people or person, just like the all the living things are our family. And, and even just like a traditional family is not stipulated to just nuclear family. It's like my cousins I would consider to be brothers or even my uncles I would consider to be my brothers. Um, so like when there's this one conflict, it sort of took me out. It was like you're, you're, the conflict is over. Is Am I your brother or is the animal your brother? The answer really is you're both – they're both brothers. This conflict really is fabricated from an indigenous perspective um, and that's where it kind of broke down. Um, but I thought just the fact that it was placing a position where it was exploring these ideas and these issues of what family is, whether it's like human or non-human, is really important in some sort of large franchise to be dealing with because I feel like that's an indigenous perspective I never see really depicted. And that's something that I felt like was valuable about the first film, thinking about the tree and this interconnectedness with everything. And that's still the motif here. I feel like that's going to like develop further. I feel like these – uh, Tolkien's are actually going to be characters in subsequent films, and that's where I'm really curious to see like how how and if that plays out. And I think that's why we spent so much time with them in this particular uh, second act. Um, but that was probably the most um, interesting element of like what is family mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, well, thank you firstly for sharing a little about your, your indigenous perspective there. I think the thing that's nice too is again, a criticism we have over the first film is Jake Sully's not very interesting. And I think like we said earlier, he's not very interesting here either. And when he's not being a dad, he's not interesting. So they're like, but wait, we're just going to quietly push him to the fringes. Cause I mean, that second act is where he kind of, I mean, he's around when he has to be, but he really does, isn't in the most, like a really good chunk of that second act. And, uh, I think they are clearly, Investing a lot in these kids, specifically, yes, the the middle son and Sigourney Weaver's character. I think where their stories are going has potential. Hopefully it pays <laughs> off. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sigourney Weaver character. So I, I want to call that out to um, they at the very beginning do this thing where, oh, yeah, um, and Sigourney Weaver from the first film, her avatar just had a baby. We don't know how it happened. I initially, yeah, Alex is rolling her eyes. <laughs> I'm right sorry. Now. I I was like, I had a lot of good faith coming into this one. I'm like, okay, we got lots of opportunities here, but in like it, it really was tr- testing me in that first act. I was like, "Girl, what is happening? Like, why is all of this stuff?" No. So, so my that was my reaction initially as well, as with pretty much everyone that we yeah we saw it with because my Lauren, my fiance, also did. I literally heard her go, "Oh," like out loud, which she doesn't do very often in the movies. Um, it. The fact that they bring it up at least two more times in the text of the film mm-hmm. really leads me to believe that that's a quite that's meant to be a initially it feels extremely hand wavy. But the fact that they make it a point to acknowledge it in the text at least two, if I ta- my, by my count twice uh, and then 
outside of the fact that she's got all these weird powers. Um, to me, it seems to imply that there's something else going on there other than mas- uh, magical uh, immaculate conception. At least I, I really hope so. Again, 2050, call me up and tell me I'm wrong. Um, 2050? 2050? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> when that fifth one comes out. But uh, um, that said, I just wanted to acknowledge that because stuff like that, to your point, Sunrise, it doesn't answer those questions in a meaningful way. I don't, I think that's by design. And I'm at this point, I am making the active choice to give uh, Cameron the benefit of the doubt on where that goes. Uh, now it could be wrong down the road. Uh, he, it's not satisfying. And then I'm like, why did we, that was such a dumb writing decision. We'll, we'll see. Alex, what, what was your take on the family dynamic? Just to echo, I really loved the inner workings of the, of the family um, the actual immediate nuclear family. Um, I thought those were really powerful. That's where I wanted to spend all my time. And as soon as that helicopter and a uh, helicopter came, I'm like, oh no, they're going to figure out where they are. And then it went right back into the like, oh, there's Quaritch and all the bad guys. And uh, that's all the stuff that I didn't care about and I wasn't interested in. Um, but that was the best part of the film for me. And I also want, I really like the idea of this chosen family as community piece. Whenever we, um, they came as almost basically refugees to the to the water tribe and they just needed their support and how this the the struggle of kind of like these cultural ideas kind of coming to head with each other and then they did become you know family within each other and and like I thought that was really moving too because um, you know, there's a lot of folks like in my life personally, um, we're all talking about the ways that we connected with the family of the film. It's like, I don't have like a lot of like nuclear family, uh, especially that lives near me. So the idea that, you know, my friends are, are just as important as my family and this idea of chosen family, I thought that was really meaningful. So they did a, they did a good job with all of that. Mm-hmm. I love that we, uh, that, that, you know, spider, the adopted child, human child left behind again, character itself. I'm trying to figure out. I can't figure I out how I feel yeah, about that. I'm in the middle of the road because I don't dislike it, but it's like I also don't know that I like it either. Yeah, um, I yeah. love. Okay, this is another one where I'm gonna. I think this one's a little riskier, but I'm gonna choose to give the film the benefit of the doubt that the the spider quartz relationship is going to uh, lead to some sort of emotional catharsis down the road. They certainly are trying to set that up, sure. um, which leads me to the question of quartz as a whole. Um, firstly, I thought he was awesome in the first film. I, he's literally mustache twirling general. Um, and they play it up even more here. My, my favorite gosh. And this is when he either works for you or you don't. And yeah. you know, it at the beginning of the film when they're doing the whole recap video and, and at the end of the guys go, he goes, hoorah. And they all go, hoorah. And they're, and they're Oakley sunglasses. I'm like, and I'm like, God, I love that. These guys are just dumb meathead <laughs> bad guys who want to kill stuff. Um, <laughs> So firstly, I on its face, when used properly, I think villains like that are fine. And I think they, especially in the first film, it works. thing I like here, though, is they do add that little wrinkle with Quaritch, which is uh, he actually had a son who got left behind and then was adopted by the Na'vi. And it's sort of, even though this movie goes out of its way to for the Na'vi Quaritch to acknowledge that I am not the guy who died, he still has this... Psychological. I mean, it's all the memories and everything are still his. So he feels the connection to Spider, and he's trying to take him in and show him how his way is the right way. I feel like we're really setting him up to have a redemption arc. Um, I'm curious. It worked so. At the end of the day, the Quaritch character worked for me. I also like the idea that it's positing the unquote 
blood is thicker than water versus the family or the, the you know the folks we choose sort of theme kind of competing ideologies related to family in the film. Um, Sunrise, did Quaritch work for you? Did his return work? What would you think? It's an interesting question. Um, I wasn't quite sure. I was like, what are we going to do with this character? Is, is this going to be a Force Awakens? Or it's like, we just have another character, legacy characters coming back. Um, everybody else is there, but like felt it was forced that like, why is there not more of the military coming back? Like some other person, why is it not Edie Falco? Was like sort of like my yeah. question. Another character that was underused. Another, yeah, yes. uh, yeah, underutilized. Again, yeah. again, I think it's going to come back. I, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, like the the moment where he like holds his own skull was really interesting to me. Yeah. It was like very resonant of like Hamlet, uh, mm. except it's like the specter of his own past rather than like the father. Yeah. And he had just seen the video where he sees himself die, and then he just is like pondering, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's and that you know it's a cool vi- again just. Powerful visual storytelling using iconography we're familiar with the Hamlet thing, but then immediately he crushes it. It's a good way to say just I mean silent film. He's just like, oh, oh, there's I'm dead, and what do I do? Ah, pathetic. You know, just mm-hmm. it's just great. Got great Jim Cameron visual <laughs> storytelling. Anyway, once they get into the interrogation with his um, uh, potential surrogate child, I, I don't even know what to call them because they like emphasize the fact that they are not related, mm-hmm. yeah. and and. That is an interesting question. Like, uh, that's an interesting, like, future question, really. When we uh, probably get to the point where human bodies are swappable, you know, we just take an identity and put ourselves in a, a clone of ourselves so that we're still young. Um, that was sort of like asking those kinds of questions to me, which made me think a little bit about, like, along the lines of, I don't know, technology and the Terminator and, you know, like just taking the identity and putting it in a new Terminator. It seemed to be analogous and um, and like Blade Runner a little bit. So like that relationship between the potential father and the potential son was really interesting from that perspective. Like what are we dealing with here? Like yeah. a, a potential. It, it hadn't occurred to me until we've had this conversation and we brought up these issues because really to me, that character didn't work for me at all until, but now that as we're talking about it, I'm realizing there's a lot of undercurrent yeah. of things yeah. that could put, that could make his character more dynamic. Like you mentioned a redemption arc that is far more interesting to me than a one note villain that just wants to colonize the, that's boring to me. Like that's, we've seen that. Um, but him coming to some kind of understanding, which is kind of like what we do in politics where we're trying to make the, the entity that's the bad thing come to our persuade our, to our side of like, Humanity of like this is what we feel like, and this is why we can how we can coexist with these conflicts that might be opposing. Um, I think that 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 makes him a little bit more intriguing to me, and also because we're bringing up the fact that like you mentioned, like um, them him having saying that this was my brother, you know, like in the in the, the Navi, you know, like this having that kind of like we're all brothers, and you know, like so maybe like this isn't my son, but we are family. You right. see what I'm saying? Right. Like, and maybe that, if that is, I don't know, that's in, intentional or, or, but if it is, that's interesting to me. That's an interesting thread line. Of- well, and, and I wasn't sure, honestly, whether or not it was going to work for me until the moment near the end, whenever Natiri has a, a knife to spider's throat, mm-hmm. that was the real test. Cause at the whole time I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like, I see mm-hmm. what they're trying to do here. I'm not sure if it's working, but whenever it's like Natiri in full mom mode is like, you killed my oldest son. I know I'm going to kill your son. And mm-hmm. you just see him kind of stand off and he's like, no, no, he's trying to be the tough, uh, you know, Marine. But even he like he, something deep down is like, I can't let this thing that 
my mind is sort of like my son. I can't let him die just so I can uh, complete my mission. Right. Sure. And, and there's that, that sort of like complexity that you see is really, and I don't know if it was, it was a combination of the tech and, and Lang's performance and just the way they had kind of slowly set that up. It really landed with me emotionally in that moment. Um, which is why I bought spider minutes later, saving his life again, He's the bad guy. Why would you help him? Especially when you see spider throughout the movie saying, God, you're just the worst, but it's because there's that, they both see that part. We're not by blood related, but you're still my family sort of thing, you know? And I can't wait to see where they go with that. I think there's so much potential there. Alex, any thoughts on the Quaritch character? Yeah. I mean, I was exceptionally disappointed whenever we're bringing him back because he was literally my least favorite part of the first film. Um, So, I when he came back, it's like, and then he's gonna be doing the the avatar thing, but not so we can kind of skirt the issue, and and that just that didn't make me feel super comfortable either. And but I think whenever the interrogation sequence occurred, that's when it really also like popped off for me. I loved Edie Falco's like casual detached evil. It wasn't over the top mustache twirling. It was the fact that it's like I'm just. I'm just a, like a soldier here doing my job and you're my mission and we're going to accomplish it. It was passionless. And I love that about that performance. And that's what I was hoping more to have from a villain in this kind of universe that it's, it's more cold. And I really like that part. So whenever he does have this empathetic moment, because his evil is all driven on passion and emotion. And, and it's like, Oh, this is some next level stuff. Because at the end of the day, he, I feel like he can justify what he's done because of, because of the loss of his family, like his troops and everything. So he has, even if he's completely wrong, he can justify you know, everything he can to himself, but it's the fact that he can't justify what she's doing to his son. I say with the air quotes. And so I, I, as soon as that sequence happened, I'm like, okay, I think I'm, I'm in and much more comfortable with this. The same thing with when we get to Nateria at that end of the third act. Um, I'm still kind of on the fence on spider saving him. I don't think he wouldn't save him, but I don't know how that dynamic is all going to play out in the third film because, well, for starters, Nateri almost kills spiders and that's going to be complicated. No trust. That, there's, they, yeah. yeah, they have to address that. In the yeah, third film. there's a lot of trust issues that are going to have to come up and kind of fracture things as they are. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I thought overall he worked much better than I thought he would. I still wanted there to be, I mean, we got our evil, evil adjacent marine biologist, so I should be happy because that was what I wanted, but we got it kind of. I like the whaler, honestly, a lot more as a big mustache twirling kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's got um, quotas to me. Come on. Yeah, that I thought like, yeah. He only kind says of, it like nine times. Yeah, he does in his Australian, very Australian <laughs> accent. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on the matter. Not related to the family. This is probably, and I didn't mention this in the spoiler free section. I, I do think, I don't question Quaritch's motives for vengeance. That part is very clear why he and his troops are after Jake Sully. Totally buy that 100%. What I don't, I think, the the area that I struggle to suspend my disbelief in this, the plotting of this movie is how apparently this private corporation has deemed Jake Sully is like enemy number one. He's like an Osama bin Laden or something, which, you know, 
based on the first film, I kind of get it. And we also see at the beginning of this film, oh, he's like blowing up trains and all that stuff again, like an eco-terrorist sort of thing. Um, but it seems weird because at the end of the first act, Jake Sully flees. He is no longer at the tree, which is supposed to be the thing they want, right? right. So why are they using all of these? They're using a lot of resources <laughs> to hunt this guy down when they could just get the thing that they came there for. But that's uh, the thing that I said all the time in that first podcast, 21st century solutions to 23rd century problems. Again, like I don't think any corporation that has like, you know, a bot, quotas to me, quotas to me that would be allowing someone to have a passion renegade mission like this. I think part of this is the fact that he has a tactical knowledge you know, he's like spreading oh, information to okay, the Navi okay. about how gotcha. these right. people are able to so strategically. Okay. okay. Yeah. They okay. could have maybe made the sneeze clear. They could the have. They the totally could have. <laughs> but that's like, yeah, that's fantastic. Let's move into the uh, some of these environmental themes here. And uh, so listen, it's not hiding. And this is, again, one of the, I think this is a feature, not a bug. I th- love that James Cameron, he's not hiding what he thinks or how he feels about any of these things. It's all in the text, especially the environmentalism. It was in the first film in 2009. Uh, the film laid out th- very clear themes of de- deforestation uh, via colonialism. And in thir- the last 13 years since uh, the film come out, uh, sadly, things have not gotten better on planet Earth. Uh, The United Nations for Climate Change, uh, also known as the UNFCC, reported recently uh, the past seven years were the warmest on record. There is a 48 percent chance uh, that during at least one year in the next five years, the annual mean temperature will temporarily be 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than the uh, average from the years 1850 to 1900 and – Also, in the same report, the number of weather, climate, and water-related disasters has increased by a factor of five over the past 50 years. I'm not saying this to say, ooh, scary, all doom and gloom, but I just, as aware of things as I think a lot of us were in 2009, and there was already all the red sirens and red flags, and especially in the scientific community in 2009, were being very clear about what needed to happen. We're seeing some marginal marginal improvements in Europe on like actual regulations around these things. I'm just curious though. I mean, do you guys think this film hits differently if at all in 2022 than it did in 2009? Laurent, you're, you're shaking your head in all the different directions. Let's yeah. Just cause uh, it's more urgent. It's more urgent. I think in 2009, uh, the present, the, the presentation of these ideas felt novel and like hopeful and optimistic. And now here we are. It's like, we've learned nothing. (laughs) We've devolved in 13 years uh, from that messaging. And so um, on record, like now, like, I mean, how long is summer now? Summer bleeds until fall and like it's 70 degrees in October and and, in November. There's still leaves on the trees in Oklahoma right now. December uh, 17th. Like it's getting harder and harder and harder to decide what to wear during the year. During the, (laughs) I mean, during a a record year. I mean, so, I mean, we're seeing the real life tangible ramifications of our choices as much as we want to believe that we're, we're symbolically the Navi you know, because we're enlightened about these ideas and in, in, in the world and the universe, we really are the kernel and all of the, you know, as a race, you know what I mean? So I think it does hit differently. You know, um, I don't think 
necessarily that Avatar is going to be Avatar: The Way of Water is going to be the thing to change people's minds about it, but um, but it does make for an interesting discourse on the issue of environmentalism as it's depicted in the movie um, in parallel with our own our own world. Yeah, I, I want to make clear too. When I say marginal improvements, it's mostly that there's been legislative action taken sure. specifically in Europe, <laughs> which, by the way, is not China and is not the United States. I uh, just want to call that out, uh, Alex. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on sort of uh, how this film hit hits in 2022? I think because we they I don't think they said the word unobtainium in this film once. I cannot recall an instance. So and yeah. and that's good in the sense that. Because on unobtainium feels like a superhero like substance. It doesn't. It's so laughably fictional that it's hard to like take it seriously. Whereas this this situation that's now happening on Pandora's feels so much more grounded, and I think it's easier for um, most people to make a connection with it because we have Elon Musk talking about colonizing Mars. That's literally the plot of new, the new <laughs> of like what Edie Falco is trying to do. It's like, yeah, we're scrapping the whole mining operation. We're just building cities so we can get our people offshore. Like, because that's where we're at. at. The planet is dead. And now we know from the whaling operation, people are living forever. Like very, very wealthy people are living a long, long time. So we got to put them somewhere. And that in that place is Pandora, apparently. And I think if P I think the, the real world parallel, I think it hits harder in for modern day um, for 2022 audiences. I hope so. Um, will it cause lasting change? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's again, the same. I mean, this is me, my ex exceptional cynicism. I remember when Elon Musk bought Twitter, I looked up the value of what it would take to kind of reverse climate change. And that figure was approximately $50 billion. So what was the... He could have just donated his Twitter purchase to invite the Okay, okay, yeah. okay. But here, here is me like being, being kind of a turd. So get ready. Do so it. the budget of this film, I mean, we can make that arg argument as well. It's yeah. like well, how many resources were made to make an environmental film about environmental issues. Like, I know that's only one theme in the film, but at the same time, it's like that it, yeah. it is the real world. Like it is going to happen. It, it is in the process of this happening. is our Pandora. <laughs> if we don't preserve it. Yeah. I right. mean, we're we but we don't have all of these science fiction resources to go off off world and if we do it's going to be by the ultra wealthy elites um that inject themselves with whale goo to live forever um but <laughs> um but yeah so that's kind of the the messy part of it is like is making this actually a sequel to don't look up i have to you know <laughs> it's a better sequel well it's <laughs> it's the idea of like you can using it's it's just a very complicated idea can you critique the same system while operating in the system yeah it's it oh, is yeah. it is complicated because there's not a clear answer and i think um i'm gonna turn to sunrise here in a second but i think this is exactly why exactly what you outlined alex is why are we using our valuable resources on entertainment and i think this is exactly why james cameron has said several times recently if i'm not making avatar movies i'm not making movies like he's like, I am going to be dedicating my time to sustainability efforts like like and I, I believe him, too, because a lot of things I've heard from fellow film critics, fans is I love James Cameron, but I don't like Avatar. Why is he wasting the remaining years of his career making Avatar movies? And it's because I genuinely think he's extremely passionate. He sees the, 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 the benefits of telling a story like this outweigh the negatives. Does it? 
that's sort of more subjective and a little more philosophical, but uh, I think it's a valuable question to ask. So Sunrise, uh, how about you? What, what is your take on how the, the environmental themes hit in 2022? They hit harder and harder. They get harder every year. Yeah. It, you're making me think about all these other films that had some sort of like effect on us. Like I, I first thought about uh, <laughs> the original Avatar and then I thought about um, like uh, Batman Returns. I just saw recently and they talk about global warming and I was like, this, this was 92 and we're, you know, like we didn't listen to anything that was going on in 92. And that was like an agenda of like um, the presidency and the vice president at that point, like having a coalition to try and deal with global warming and it didn't happen. There's no uh, you know, sustainable solution that came from that. But then I just – the whale narrative makes me go back to Star Trek uh, four, 1986 – and those are similar issues. The fact that a species is dying. I mean, like th th for them, it had to do with resources, but it was like also like pillaging resources for business. It's essentially the same story. And um, I, it just seems it seems like people attempt to utilize this form of entertainment on deaf ears. That's maybe too cynical. <laughs> Uh, but when we talk about how much it's gonna like, it's gonna cost two billion to make this movie become even. Yeah. That two billion dollars is more than Twitter. Yeah. And two billion dollars, you know, he could be making a documentary, which he's done before, about attempting to resolve issues with that money. It for me, it's difficult to reconcile. Yeah. Yeah. He should donate a huge <clears throat> proceeds of this. Like if he should give that 10% stake to the, you know, mm -hmm. the environmental causes, I would feel more like it would feel less like virtue signaling to me mm -hmm. if if there was a, a, a in tandem an effort to create some solutions mm -hmm. to the problems that he's yeah. like, dramatizing. Especially you know, like, whenever you look at it through the indigenous lens too, like how many tribes have just been displaced from their homeland due to global warming and colonization, like mm -hmm. the, the, the com combination of those two things. And so it's like, without like showing, it's like, it's like, Oh, we can talk about it all day long about this end of the day, people are just getting paid and that money is going into make people richer. And in those communities that this is like their real lives are not sure. Yeah. I um I guess uh, I appreciate Alex and Sunrise, you guys bringing up sort of this because I was even making fun of the cognitive dissonance earlier. <laughs> yes, um, right. But I hadn't thought about it in these terms that you could take the $2 billion that this movie cost and actually try to help solve the problem. And yeah, it just is, um, man, that's a tough one. You know, it, a similar thing came up. Uh, we did a review of Glass Onion a few weeks ago, which, by the way, is coming out on Netflix very soon, the December 23rd. Highly recommend you watch it. One of our guests, Joe Light, had brought up similarly how she had a hard time appreciating the movie because it's riffing on Eat the Rich. But then Ryan Johnson, Daniel Craig, and Ron Bergman, the producer, allegedly made, they made $100 million each when they sold the rights to two and three to Netflix. So it's like, okay, we're saying Eat the Rich, but also people who are still in the top 1%, they're not in the top 0.1%, but they're clearly much better off than other people making movies about how we should the rich of the problem as a viewer. It's very important that we're always keeping ourselves in check to billion dollars towards, uh, you know, sustainability and climate change efforts would go a really long way. Yeah. A much longer way than these movies would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, no, for real, so. because I mean, my, yeah. my, 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 my thing is you're not going to persuade 
firstly, you're you're pro- you're certainly not going to persuade people um, who are over age fifty. Like, and I'm not trying to be not to be cynical. I'm just being realistic. Um, I think your best hope is you're going to persuade young people to get active about it. And I do think you know Gen Z younger people are very vocal. Uh, about the environment, but currently lack the financial means to, you know, convert their their voice into action. And because of sort of the the gears of arts and commerce and and environment, trying to find a way to, to, for all three of those things to meet is something that I think the millennial generation, our generation has, has and is trying to do. And uh, it appears that that is not going to happen fast enough. I say a lot to say the best hope this movie has is really firing up the younger generation. Is that really going to help solve the problem in time? I don't know. There is something to be said. I mean, I don't want to discredit the merit of of, of film as a medium mm-hmm. or an influencer yeah. of change. Yeah. Because I do think it is. I think it can be. And it has proven that to, to be. Because um, we can empathize with cultures that we otherwise aren't part of and, and issues and causes and things like that. And it can bring about those things. But I think, like you said, if he cares about these issues as much as the films glean, you know, um, it seems like that, that there would be some again some some collaborative effort on the sidelines the way that Leonardo DiCaprio is a huge you know environmentalist you know as well as like you know so like th- i mean there's ways to to like this is an important movie thank you for going to see it see it to be aware of it now here are the resources for what for which we can you know yeah. that mm-hmm. that would make these films feel a little bit more you know what i mean like i could or a certain percentage of the anything. box office yeah. income yeah. goes to it doesn't have to be his whole salary you know they could just be a, a an effort well not even just from him disney like yeah. like every yeah. like everybody's cut uh you know um, even 10% of it would yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go of, of all five <laughs> movies right yeah yeah that's a ton of money um so yeah, I think it maybe it would be nice if there was we could see in a meaningful way how outside of sort of trying to inform or raise awareness of these issues, um, maybe these movies could have more direct impact on the bottom line. So are you guys? I don't know. The last thing I just want to to hit on here is the uh, like I said, James Cameron wearing what this film is on its sleeve. Do you guys find this to be too preachy? I used to think stuff like this was preachy, but I I think I've come to terms with the fact that like some in certain cases, if you don't squarely tell people exactly what you're trying to do, it's going to go over their head. Do you think the the sort of on the nose, more direct approach works? Film is a language in and of itself. And I think, like you said, in in some people have a better vocabulary than others. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. And it's just, it's, you know, and so some people need to be, you know, ham-fisted and whatever. And I think the first Avatar definitely hits you over the head with messaging. I feel like the messaging here is 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 more sophisticated, you know. Um maybe not again, just speaking about again like the environmental issues and what have you. So it doesn't bother me as much in this one. Um I think yes, it's preachy, but I think here um the messaging that that's that's being brought about is a lot more interesting than what was presented in the pre- predecessor. Okay. All right. A lot more show don't tell sort of thing. Okay. Um, Alex, any other thoughts on the, how they, how they approach the environmentalist message? Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with Laurent. Like I, I think it does it in a much more sophisticated way. It's whenever it over relies on the archetypal issues that we discussed in the first avatar pod, it like the over reliance on that. And then the story output from it was also not, it was ham fisted and not very well done. This is more subtle and more, you know, like more skillfully done. So it's like, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm fine with it. But yeah. Did you guys think, um, as an aside, sort of related, 
Um, again, cognitive dissonance, I guess, is a common thing I keep bringing back up. Yeah. Did you guys find it weird that the oh, sorry? I mean, <laughs> okay. Do you, do you not? I don't know how to. I have mixed feelings about this. The whaling sequence in which they are actively hunting whale, both upsetting because you see what they're doing to the whales. Also, kind of badass in how they're doing it. The way the film. Oh, it's it. like trying to have its cake and eat it too yeah, a little bit. exactly. Mm. Did you guys feel that way about it? You're like, well, this is awful. They're killing the whales. But dude, it's so cool how they're in the harpoon and the like. they're all- and The spider The spider bot. tech thing. Yeah. Did that bother you guys at all? Uh, I, I struggle with how to, how to reconcile these things sometimes. Oh, this is awful, but dude, it looks pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's like the the critical crux really is that it this is cool. It's not just like in, in the movie, our experience, it's like the action sequence is cool. The whales, the process, the procedure, how intelligent, it, that's all very cool. The similar way that uh, I guess the characters feel that it's cool to retrieve what they're retrieving. Like that's cool. Uh, but it is difficult to reconcile with the essential you know, murder of a species. Straight up. You know? Um, but I think because you're conflicted, like you're going to remember that moment, sure, mm. and the, and those those issues, you know. If you weren't conflicted, I feel like it wouldn't be as effective. It'd yeah. be one way or another, probably. So, would you say overall, Sunrise the the way he delivers the environmental message as more direct? Is that you think that works better here than the first film? I don't know. I I don't think it does work better. We, we're talking about like the devastation that happens at the beginning of the prologue, and I feel like it goes by very quickly. The train, I don't really link to devastation. I link to um, proactive attempts to stop a system, but not what the train is doing. I'm not thinking about like how the train is involved in like devastation. But the, but the end of the film, there's like Jake is implied to have this resolution about how to resolve problems of the future that relates to the way of water. And somehow I think that's tied to an attempt to resolve what these issues of devastation are but i'm not clear really about what jake has learned about what the way of water is mm, yeah and so i don't know what the film is suggesting as a way to think about what i am able to do as a individual with agency thinking about nature caring about nature what do i do what is that lesson for me and that's where it's really unclear because we're not going to pandora and swimming with the fish and but they don't make it clear enough yeah, the correlation to our real world is not there. It's, right. it's not strong. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 cool. It's poetic to some degree, but because I don't understand really, I don't know how to equate to what, what do I do now? Yeah. Leaves you with more questions than mm-hmm. answers. Mm-hmm. So maybe, uh, wow, this got way more, this this topic, honestly, and I love it. We, We're we having went, an existential crisis. We, <laughs> we went way deeper than I expected, but I think it's important though, because when you think about something this big, that's probably going to be seen by this many people, it's worth diving into like, what is the actual, other than us being entertained, which is great. Again, we all agree that it was very entertaining three hours, but like, what is the real value uh, of the, of the story? Is it, is it motivating baiting us to change our habits or think about things differently or take action? And uh, it sounds like we're not sure, which is not I think good. It's, quite, it's there. I think it's trying to, but I don't think it's quite yeah, there. Yeah, not quite there. Yeah, yeah, the message is maybe just like that 
I feel like a lot of people in the nineties were like, save the whales. And mm-hmm. and they would just mm-hmm. say that. That's kind of where the energy of this is just like save the whales. Save the whales, man. yeah. Yeah. Swim with the dolphins. Which I actually want to swim with dolphins after watching this movie. That sounds really cool, but like, you know, that's not not super concrete and yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the last main topic I want to hit on here, which I've already hinted at throughout our conversation, is sort of, a, is this movie a blockbuster from a, a bygone era? And again, as I acknowledge in the spoiler-free section, the world has changed quite a bit since Avatar 2009. The MCU totally redefined the formula for blockbusters, for better and for worse. Uh you know, even thinking about their competitor, DC, which, God, that's a whole, like, maybe we should have a bonus podcast about what's going on at DC right now because it sounds like Game of Thrones up there, <laughs> up in there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, like, even then, though, the Snyder first was very dark and gritty and this whole interconnected story. And my take is there's a certain, I want to make sure I'm very clear on how I'm using this word because I think it can mean a couple different things. I do think we've seen a homogenization in tentpole studio films over the last decade. And, and what, what I, I want to be very clear on what I mean, studios are more data-driven. Corporations in general are more data-driven than they've ever been because of technology, which is sometimes – I mean is – for business is great because they can identify – more uh, clearly identify what works, what makes people happy, what people like, and what people don't. Uh, but it's also made studios more risk-averse. So they only fund things that they know will work. But you know what's interesting is Avatar 1 was still a big risk when it came out. It was a huge success. But I, I guarantee you if Ava- James Cameron pitched Avatar 1 today, never would have gotten made. Never in a million years would have gotten made. It's less risky. It's more doubling down on things that we know people like, less trying to imagine outside the box. And because of that, everything feels very samey. I made the joke, uh, Alex, in the last episode about how many films – in the last 10 years have ended with a giant blue beam firing into the sky. And it doesn't have to be a superhero film. Ghostbusters 2016 did it. The Ninja Turtles movie did it. Like it's <laughs> how many movies have done that and why? And I don't understand. It's, 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 it's like a copy and paste. How many movies now have blockbuster? I'm speaking specifically about blockbusters in the large, uh, you know, 200 million, uh, but uh, dollar budgeted films. How many of them have massive third act problems very similar to how every Marvel movie has always had a third act problem. So when I talk about homogenization, I'm talking specifically about how we have less ideas, less creativity, and more more of like a template for how these films work. Um, we don't get stuff like Star Wars. Lord of the Rings, I guarantee you, if it got pitched by Peter Jackson in 2020 or 2022, rather, doesn't get greenlit. Like it's just, it does not follow the parameters for what studios want to make. I want to ask you all, I've already sort of shown you my cards a little bit. I really like the earnestness of a James Cameron blockbuster. Outside of the VFX, what do you think makes Avatar The Way of Water stand out compared to the other films that we're seeing uh, quite a bit of? Uh, and I'd say the last 10 years. Let's say from 2012 to 2022. Ron? I kind of compartmentalize this because I would say narratively, I don't think it does anything different. Um, I, I don't, And then technologically, obviously it does. Um, and then thematically, like, Somewhat, you know, somewhat, because because, um, again, these ideas have real life consequences here. So that's the access point. How well they execute that is kind of what this podcast is about, you know. So um, I think the mere mention of it 
there's merit in that because we're having a conversation. We're having a, a very in-depth conversation about it that I do think is valuable. Um, but really, I think what's more important is what happens when we leave this house and what, how do we, in our own spaces, you know what I mean, and, you know, um, employ the the messaging from the story into our lives. How do we apply it? How do we make it? How do we do something tangible in our own space? I don't care if it's recycling. I don't care if it's, in, in, you know, like just something that is that is actually has um, a, a footprint that actually will make some kind of change. And I think that if Avatar can lean into that a little bit more um, moving forward, then maybe these films can have a grassroots impact on certain issues. But the question is whether or not that is the motivation of James Cameron and the people making these movies, or if that's just the guys that it's, you know what I mean? That it's, it's, it's hiding behind. Um, and so that remains to be seen. Related. What James can't, what actually happens and what I think James Cameron intends are two different things. Uh, we saw that clearly in the plot of avatar one, well-intentioned but misguided uh, implementation of a trope. And and maybe he intends for this to do one thing, but it doesn't quite get there either, especially when you know you're owned by the Disney Corporation. Um, and there's passion behind the themes, oh, as yeah. you've mentioned. So that passion exists from somewhere, but what's the root of it? You know, he has to care about it in some capacity, or, in, or otherwise he's really playing poker face. Really, you know, now, so. I mean, this is the dude who built a submarine so he could go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench Right. Like he cares. about. I have no doubt in my mind that he wants to drive awareness to fire up young people about the environment and actually be a part of the solution, not the problem. The question I have is whether these films are actually helping achieve that. And it's it's almost impossible to measure, at least right now. I actually think that the earnestness is a big selling point for me. I, I do think it really separates itself from other blockbusters, generally speaking. Occasionally we get stuff like Dune, you know, but... Uh, Alex, any thoughts on maybe how Way of Water stands out compared to other studio blockbusters? Well, I've been chewing as we've been discussing. And just like how Avatar 2009 set the groundwork for, unfortunately, the wrong lesson that the MCU picked up and ran with, I think, unfortunately, Avatar 2 2022 picked up the wrong lessons. It's like from the MCU, which is that the the third act wasn't, Messy in terms of the action set piece. Like, I actually knew where people were, which is a huge plus. Most of the time, it's just yeah. VFX garbage. I can't tell what the heck's going on. But but in terms of, like, the plotting in the action was kind of a, a hot mess, like, in there. Like, in terms of, like, what is our objective? Man, we've been on this water thing for, like, a really long time, and then... Kids get kidnapped several times. The same kid. She's she even makes a joke. It's like I'm back on the boat. I it's like <laughs> she why I'm so tired of being tied up. <laughs> yeah, so it's like that. That felt a little tangled. Um, and and so we got we inherited a third act problem that I don't. Yeah, I don't know. And then ah, oh God, this is like somehow this film objectifies the Navi more. Like in terms of like especially the the female Navi. I feel like the camera is a lot more male gazy in this film than it was in 2009s. And in a way that like there were points where I was like I'm not looking cuz this makes me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And so I think that unfortunately like 2009 maybe some was different in a lot of ways, but then people learned from that and then now I don't know if this movie is that different anymore 
from from a lot of the stuff that surrounds it. Because we watch in a, tra- a trailer pack in IMAX, we had a trailer for Mission Impossible 6 Part 1, which looks fire, by the way. They did a great job with the trailers. I'm sold. I'm getting me sold hyped for 2023 in movies, guys. Because yeah. we got Mission Impossible. Uh, uh, John Wick 4. John Wick 4. Indy 5. Indy 5. And then Ant-Man whatever number yeah, that is. That Who fine. cares? But the thing and, is... And Barbie 1. <laughs> oh, you got oh, Barbie? You got Barbie? Ah. We didn't get we Barbie. Get Barbie. Both yeah. screenings I got Barbie. I yeah, can't that's wait. awesome. That okay, awesome. so yeah. ex- for the exception of you, you got like an actual n- new thing. Like it wasn't based on it, like a sequel of another property, even if it was a property a that already exists, right? <laughs> but like all, we only got bought sequel trailers, you know, and then we're watching a sequel and, and then it's just... Like it feels like the era of the one thing I liked about all this franchise is that it was new IP with new ideas, and it's like now that one thing I was kind of clinging to is like a little snuffed out. It's ironic. This is like the um, the James Cameron's monster, right? Right? Yeah. The fact that he perfected the sequel, really. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think that's a great way to put it. It it also reminds me of uh, at one point. And somewhere, probably on one of the DVD, back when I had time to watch all the DVD special features, I watched all the Star Wars. And at one point on one of the prequel Star Wars movies, George Lucas, in a very George Lucas way, was like, yeah, you know, I, I started out being the indie filmmaker, wanting to take down the big corporate overlords. And now Lucasfilm's one of the big corporate overlords. The older I get, the more uh, the uh, the quote that the Dark Knight uses, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain, has played out so many times right in front of our eyes. I mean, we could name a dozen examples at least. And this does in that way, to your point, Sunrise, feel kind of that way. Cause I think Alex, she raised a great point. Uh, maybe I mean, my, maybe my framing is incorrect. Maybe this movie has actually adopted a lot of the negative things that have come out of the last decade plus of uh, blockbusters. Sunrise, uh, any other thoughts you want to add before we move on? Yeah, so um... just just this idea of a blockbuster is really interesting to me. A Terminator Two by itself, not just the fact that it was a successful sequel, but it 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 was an independent film, also just like Star Wars was an independent, and it 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 sort of was part of this process of creating a worldwide tentpole. It was like one of the first films where somebody went out and. Um, you know, basically got all these different companies from different markets across the world to invest in this particular film. And then it was going to go back into those markets. And that's how it became so successful. And it sort of became one of these instigators of like worldwide tentpole success. And so to some degree, this is exactly where he probably should end up. Uh, But then he is also, he is this monster that he's finding within the film itself. Um, and that's a, just a really interesting scenario that doesn't happen with these other franchises. Uh, they weren't involved in the creation of these tent poles. And uh, he is sort of a successor. I used to think that Rodriguez was the successor to George Lucas. Yeah. But I think Cameron is pushing all this technology, um, thinking about kids as sort of like a primary audience that can, can cultivate across time. The franchise is original. It is motivated by something that is earnest. And it, it all came from his own imagination and also potentially novelistic. So that that to me is like that is a blockbuster from a different era. You know, the fact that we have a resurrection of George Lucas when really we can't say that I can't say that Marvel I can pin down to one auteur, you know. 
there's very few maybe maybe Glass Onion for example is like the next example of somebody who's able to create a franchise uh, of their own or original idea but um, so many of these other properties pre-existing we can't really say maybe Peter Jackson we can say you know with Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit but not the new series so that's an interesting thing that comes from one individual mm-hmm. um, and I and I do believe truthfully. There's only one man on earth who could have made this movie. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah. that is so interesting, man. You, What you're saying is like taking me on a journey because I'm like, it's like 30 years from now. This is like, we're ta- Caleb has an Empire Strikes Back poster on the wall. Like kids will be like talking about this film hypothetically. Like if this dies, whatever, but that like the fan fiction, the books, the con- conventions, maybe this will be. You know, whatever gen that is, is uh, Star Wars, like, you know, original trilogy. And because cultivating the young fans, like, man. But see, the thing is that James Cameron did not do with the first one, as we pointed out earlier, though, is George Lucas merchandised the shit out of Star Wars as fast as he could. Um, And and obviously had sequels coming. Empire came out three years later. He was able to find a way to keep it in the zeitgeist. Um, so I think it helped cultivate that. Whereas between, at least between Avatar one and two, we'll see about these upcoming sequels. It was like crickets. Yeah. The park will help. Like the fact that it's everywhere with all of the children will help. And the video game from Ubisoft is probably going to be pretty big too. Yeah. yeah. Cereals yeah. at Walmart. Cereals and Walmart. <laughs> Christmas ornaments in Target. Yeah. 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 Um, Using all that unemptanium to fuel the story <laughs> that's about stopping the mining of unemptanium. Yeah. And who knows, like, all of the really subtle tie-ins. I actually was watching a, a Defunct Land documentary uh, about d- the Disney Channel theme. Um, and basically in that, the, he got a VP from Disney on the phone basically saying that the two and a half years or the year before Nemo came out, Finding Nemo, they were just doing fish facts like they would do fish facts as little interstitials between programming and with nothing like saying hey finding nemo is coming anything like that but just to build the hype around fish and then oh I, it's like the child is already programmed to like fish and now the the, the movie is out and like hmm. maybe like who knows all of the subtle stuff that's been going on on network tv or any of these like these channels that kids are on that has already priming people to like draw to it. It's good marketing, by the way, for Finding Nemo team. It's Seriously. fucked, but good marketing, unfortunately. <laughs> they, they, listen, there's two ways to look at that. One way to look at it is, wow, way, way to manipulate the, the way kids think. But the other thing you can look at is, hey, those kids learned about fish. They learned about okay, fish. But the, yeah. the, the, the thing and they probably care about fish that. now. Well, yeah. a lot of kids cite like adults. So people, you know, in the 20s, 30s range now, they, some of them became marine biologists because of the fish facts on, on Disney. So there is a good story that comes out of that. But but it is yeah. it was a marketing ploy first. <laughs> going off on a tangent. Yeah. Here, but go, I will say that ties back into what we were looking at earlier with the environmental message it is very hard to find a place where commerce commerce and science and storytelling all meet in the middle and uh the, the reality is it's never a purely this is the right thing to do it's it's a very complex business decision marketing is done like yes children are educated with the the goal of being to get them to buy things that's sad and unfortunate. Now there's two ways to look at it, which is, wow, it's awful that that is how we are. We are like kind of creating these carrots that kids are going to want. But on the other hand, 
Well, carrots are good for kids. Somebody's got to care for the fish. We got the marine biologists on the whale boat. Somebody's yes. got I'm, me. I'm yeah. sorry. Well, <laughs> we sorry. Uh, we did go off the rails a little bit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This was a great conversation. We did not go as long as the actual film, though we may we, we made, were close. We were, we were close. We were within <laughs> thirteen minutes. Uh, <laughs> 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 all right. To bring us home, is there anything else? Any closing thoughts on Avatar: The Way of the Water? You all would like to add? Sunrise. Yeah, a couple things. So I just want to say that uh, I think the, uh, the the hair department in the animation team was like one of the greatest I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, it really allowed me to understand the difference between the characters and I was like hair, I think is such a difficult thing in animation and yeah, just props to them. Um, also, this just made me very aware of who is good for this kind of acting. You know, mm. it, the people who are able to act with their eyes, you know, the people that are able to do stuff with their mouth. Zoe Saldana. Yeah, Zoe Saldana. She's top build now for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I feel like Sigourney was one of those. Yes. Yep. And um, I think I think uh, Lang uh, is great as the as Corich is is, is phenomenal um, with the style acting and as well. S- and Sigourney Reaver particularly because she's playing a fourteen year old girl, and we know. Right. We know. We haven't right. even talked about that right. enough. Holy cow! Yeah. We know she's she not a teenage version. It's not yeah. Sigourney, but you know, so, but she's able to emote. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, there's there's emotions there. Um, and I'm not thinking of her, her voice is Sigourney Weaver's voice, but I'm not thinking of her facial expressions and whatever as, as, as her, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of it as a child. And mm-hmm. so that was, mm-hmm. that was very interesting. Sigourney Weaver, MVP. Her and Zoe Saddle are just top notch. Yeah. Uh, Laurent, any closing thoughts? I still say go see it. I mean, I think it's worth seeing. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot here that's also problematic, but there's also a lot here that's worthy of, of discussing. You know, we got one off some wild tangents I wasn't expecting, and I think I uh, will say I'm walking away from this conversation with a lot to think about, and I hope listeners you as well. Alex, any any final word? Yeah, to piggyback on that, honestly, I left the theater. I was exhausted also, but I left the theater not like knowing what I thought about it, but not also having like a ton of ideas about it. But this discussion coming from it now, now I'm chewing on it. But unfortunately, that's going to be a problem for most people you go into the theater and you don't have a bunch of really smart film nerd friends to talk about (laughs) things with. I mean, you got this pod, so congratulations if you're listening to this, but, but not like everyone has that in their lives. So without that conversation, I don't know if this film has the staying power. Still go see it. It's a great old, great old Christmas time, but. And we hope you made it to your destination safely if you're driving. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Several hours later. (laughs) The last thing I would say, um, and we talked about so many things, and and now we even challenged the notion of whether it was even ethical to make this movie. (laughs) 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 But see, then then we get, yeah. So, you know, I'm going to pull it back from there and just say, um, Sunrise, I, uh, you know, I was originally thinking about comparing this series more to Lord of the Rings with The Hobbit being a, kind of a parallel to the first film where it's like, oh, this is like the prologue that sets up the bigger story. But honestly, you really had me rethink that and, and think about this as more of a spiritual successor to the George Lucas prequel films, mm-hmm. both in the earnestness, uh, the the use of story to kind of communicate these very clear political ideologies and also pushing the technology forward in a, in a big way, all geared towards a younger audience that is both exciting and terrifying at the same time. And it, it really leaves me with a lot more to think about, not just this film, but, but Hollywood, the future of storytelling and just kind of where we're heading. Deep stuff. 
deeper than I expected to go, even on an Avatar The Way of Water podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been our review of Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, if you want to keep up with us and all the things we're doing online, I want to give each one of you a chance to chime in about the best place to follow you online. Uh, Sunrise, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on to do this very lengthy uh, review discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you online? Thanks. It was enjoyable. I loved it. Um, so people can find me on Letterboxd. I'm just Sunrise on there. You could follow me on Instagram. I really only post stuff that I'm programming, but that's sunrise.tipicani. I'm also on another podcast occasionally called Real Indigenous Podcast, where you kind of do indigenous media. That's cool. I yeah. need to check that one out. Yeah. Laurent? Uh, you can follow me under my name, Laurent Chapman, on social media. Or if you want to uh, look at my compiled reviews, because I do review everything I see, um, on Letterbox at black underscore Cinna underscore man. Awesome. Alex? Um, yeah, until my portfolio site is back up, you can find me on LinkedIn. Yes, the second LinkedIn plug on, <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, it's just my name, Alexander Bohannon. Um, you can find me there. You can find me on social if you want, but I'm not very active anymore. So have fun interneting around, I guess. Well, the internet is both fun and awful all at the same time. So it, draining. It, and, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> accurate. Uh, of course, you can follow all the things we do over here at the Cinematropolis at thecinematropolis.com. Uh, I think coming out next week, we're going to have a an in-depth uh, piece on The Whale from Daniel Bokemper. Uh, of course, if you want to hear what Alex and Daniel Bokemper think about Avatar 1, you can go back and listen to the previous episode. And we do have one more episode coming out this year where Laurent, Daniel Bokemper, and Dalton Stewart are going to talk about our top five films of 2022 uh, along with uh, we're going to give out a lot of awards just for fun uh just to kind of round out the the year and uh, you can expect that the goal if all goes as planned you're going to get that before new year's eve so uh stay tuned and uh, just another reason to subscribe uh if you want to keep up with my my thoughts on the internet i guys i'm trying so hard to find a healthy alternative to twitter that doesn't suck um i'm not a fan of mastodon um you know I could try Tumblr. Uh, there was another one. Uh, the Hive just came back up. So that's there's a potential there. Until I figure that thing out, though, you will find me on Twitter with the tweets, tweeting about film, television, and uh, video games um, uh, over at, uh, there at Seamaster Talk. That is the letter Seamaster Talk. Uh, or for all those quick little movie blurbs, uh, you can catch me on Letterboxd at Seamaster Talk as well. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We'll catch you again next time with our final episode of the year. Bye.